WAPG Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 296. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from Studio 827 in the Sheraton Recording Studios in Springfield, Massachusetts. In today's episode, a glider hits a drone in the Netherlands, a 757 gets its nose all out of shape, and who needs a stinking runway? That and more news, your feedback, and the latest episode installment of Plane Tales. Get all settled in, sit back and relax. Tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions. Flight 296 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast where we, funny enough, talk about aviation. And joining me today from the Carolinas, we have a doctor, a marathon runner, skydiver, and a commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph well, hello. Um, yeah, very excited to talk about some aviation today. Um, I actually, speaking of aviation, I need to go flying. It's been a while since I've actually done any flying. I just have been letting the airlines fly me around all over the place. And if I don't get up there soon, I'm going to run out of my currency. But I'm not there yet, so I'm going to get back out there really soon. But for the moment, I'll settle for, for talking about aviation. Good. Get out there know, stuff, please. Okay. Don't let other people do it for you. Also joining us from across the pond, a an Airbus captain flies the A330 and A340 series. He is uh, outside the uh, London area. He's a former RAF and RAAF fighter pilot, Nick Anderson. Well, hi there, Jeff. Hi, hi. A um, little bit wrong on location today. I've actually made it across the pond, and I'm uh, just outside Manhattan in Uniondale. Oh, that's right. Long Island. <laughs> Thanks. I've forgotten already that you're <laughs> actually over here in the States. Yes, I am. Yes, I'm, in, I'm, I'm five hours uh, behind the United Kingdom, so uh, they, I'm feeling a bit slow today. Ah, they've already made the switch over to the... Well, actually, now the, that's uh, true. No, it's time. four hours. I, yeah, I should have mentioned, I should have corrected myself. That's four hours behind the UK. Uh, when you guys switch uh, next weekend or this coming weekend, it'll be back to five. It just confuses me this week because we don't do it on the same day. It's silly, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is silly. I don't know why we have to do the stupid changing of the time every six months anyway. It doesn't make any sense anymore. Well, in the UK, no, we used to do it for the farmers so that they had an extra hour day to, like, to milk the cows or something stupid. Uh, that's what they say here too. And, and I, uh, don't, I don't buy it. Don't think it's really applicable anymore, no, <laughs> but you know, I what do I know? But, but I mean, it costs us a lot more in heating and lighting because those few extra hours of, uh, afternoon sunlight that we would have had, you know, having to put the heating on earlier and you put the lighting on earlier, uh, which just means we consume more electricity, pay more bills. It's ridiculous. 
Yeah, and they I think they they've done studies and, and they have some stats on how changing the time really affects things like traffic accidents and people's health and everything else. It's uh, just a not yeah. a good thing. I think I mean, should, I'd just rather have it. daylight at the end of the day. You know, I'd rather it be light out when I leave work. And but that's just because I work a regular like eight to five job most days. So let me get this right. You want daylight at night? Not at night, but just I don't want it to get dark. <laughs> oh, at okay. <laughs> it makes night flying. I'd easier. rather get dark. <laughs> <laughs> and be dark during the day. No, wait yeah, a minute. That doesn't night make any sense at all. No, no, no. I just I just would like it to stay lighter later. I don't care about the daylight. Yeah, in, I see. In the early morning. Right. So. Ah, I see. Gotcha. Anyway, we're all Zulu now, so aren't we? So listen, no, I am. You I'm are. Zulu. You are. You're, 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 you're never going to be Zulu. But I'm, they, I'm, won't, they won't let us. We've petitioned. Was. I'm sure we've petitioned. Yeah. Because we want to be <laughs> the center of, a, of all things. So. Yeah, center of attention, including time. Um, also, Dana is not right with us now, but he is going to be joining us at some point here soon. I believe he's just getting back from a trip today, but we'll hear from him when he, uh, when he joins in. And uh, let's see. So uh, let's just quickly kind of get all caught up with uh, what's been happening with each of us. Uh, Captain Nick, you said you're in New York City or Long Island. And uh, what, why are you there? Uh, it's just uh, the first trip of the month. Uh, it was a uh, reasonably late flight in to uh, JFK. I've got two nights here, which is a little unusual, but... Uh, I was on call yesterday in case one of the bin liners goes U.S. and they replace it with an Airbus. They need an Airbus crew out here. But there were obviously lots of going on uh, um, with uh, disruptions uh, yesterday because uh, my first officer got whipped away from me and sent home yesterday on a different flight. Uh, I got a first officer who flew into Miami and then had to position up to JFK and he's going to become my FO today. And when I fly it later on, and uh, generally speaking, it's all been a bit of a cock up because I was supposed to be in a hotel in Manhattan, which has been lovely for me. And despite me knowing that and trying to tell Hotak and crewing over and over and over again, they insisted I come to uh, the Long Island Marriott, which is not my favorite hotel. And then I've discovered that my entire crew, including my first officer, are at a completely different hotel. So now I've got to arrange separate transport. It's just been a bit of a nightmare. They Take just care. don't listen. Gotta love scheduling, right? Yep. We love them. <laughs> so that's my story, right. and I'm sticking to it. Well, I understand that you uh, were involved in some meetup activity um, since the last time that we recorded. Oh, oh yes. And yeah. uh, we can... We can, we can cover that uh, very soon after we hear from Dr. Steph. Uh, what's been happening with you? Mm, this time around, not, not a whole lot. I was uh, up in Asheville over the weekend, which was very nice. Had a lovely weekend there. Um, although Sunday was a very cold day in North Carolina. Some of that same weather that affected kind of the Northeast made its way across here as well. And actually drove home in the snow for the first time this season um, on Sunday night. I mean, it was like gusty, windy, blowing snow across the road as I was trying to get through the mountain pass over um, just east of Asheville. So I was not ready for that yet. That was a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> and now today it's it's 75 degrees again here, so Fahrenheit. 
saw some of your tweets uh, with the, uh, uh, the the snowfall and or sleet oh, yes. or whatever it yeah. was on the. Uh, it was on kind the of this like, little heavily snowfall. It wasn't really sleet; like it was definitely more snow, but it wasn't uh, nice as snow. Not like the snow you're going to go out and pack into snowballs and make snowmen with or anything, but yeah, unpleasant. So that that same storm system uh, was in play when I picked up a white slip trip, which is uh, for us uh, a regular. It pays regular time, not like the green slips like uh, I like to do. That is uh, like overtime pay, double pay. Uh, but I needed to, I had a, an opportunity to fill up the rest of my month on the 30th and 31st. So I picked up an overnight to Portland, Maine, uh, where I got a chance to meet up with Micah. Uh, but uh, to do it, to get there, I had to fly through that awful storm system. That nor- They were calling it a nor'easter but it actually, uh, it's more appropriately uh, titled a south southwester. I guess mm-hmm. that's what you'd say that uh, because everything was blowing from the southwest, not the northeast, and uh, it, the winds were horrible. And uh, the whole way up there, we we're trying to anticipate what the winds are going to be because this is a fast moving system, and they're the winds are swinging around and they're going all over the place. And uh, so, of course, you know all the runways that we've briefed um, were completely out the window because now they're they're uh, landing on two nine with a exactly 30 knot crosswind and the crosswind limit on my airplane is 30 knots. And, uh, then, uh, the airplane ahead of us, a jet blue, uh, reported uh, moderate plus turbulence in the last four to 500 feet down to touchdown. And I thought, lovely, this is going to be fun. Yay! No, it was not fun no. at all. It was one of the hardest landings I've ever had to make in my life. Wow. I'd say definitely the top five and it may be actually the toughest one of all. Uh, it was, Wow. Uh, very, the, the winds are, I kept thinking to myself, please don't, please don't give me a wind shear, uh, reactive wind shear morning. Um, and they, uh, it didn't because it, it wasn't bouncing around that much, I guess, but, uh, it was, uh, it was quite interesting. I had my, all my leg into the right rudder to keep the, uh, nose going straight down the runway and, uh, put it on the, on the runway. It wasn't pretty, but, uh, got it down and, uh, uh, I was just happy to be there. And I, I was telling the first officer as we were taxiing in, I said, you might have to stand by at the door because I don't think I can stand up because my leg is shaking. <laughs> my leg is going to fall off. <laughs> my leg is shaking from, you know, having to push it down. I mean, yeah, I'm having pro- to push it into the rudder for that long. I was probably, you know, yeah. putting a lot of pressure on it too, you know, trying to push it even more, you know, but just, uh, just means you got to go to the, the gym more often, more leg days. I probably should. Yeah. Right. And, uh, just kidding. yeah. So you, Jeff, what's that? I said, boy, you, Jeff, it's obviously one of those days where you think you're probably not paid enough. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and it was interesting when you're in a situation like that, it's obvious to the passengers and the flight attendants, everybody on your airplane, that that was one heck of a landing that you had to uh, pull, out, pull out of the hat. And it's uh, almost every single passenger said, nice landing, you know, great landing, you know, for the conditions and blah, blah, blah. You could just tell that they were probably just be happy to be alive. Because it was, uh, like, even, thank goodness you didn't screw that one up, buddy. Flight attendants were going like, I didn't know where this thing was going because you know, yeah. the, the nose was just like swinging, you know, 20 degrees this way, 20 degrees that way. We're getting you know, up and down turbulence yeah. and everything else. And it was like Mr. Toad's wild ride. And, uh, anyway, so made it. Awesome. And, uh, so I got a chance to meet up with Micah and it was worth it, Micah. Although I, please don't ask me to do that again. I don't know if I want to do that again. <laughs> anyway, so uh, unfortunately, I didn't get a picture or a recording with Micah, but uh, there was 
a meetup um, or earlier. Uh, actually, we recorded last, what, Wednesday or Thursday? Um, on Friday of last week, uh, there was a little meetup in Atlanta because Dave Abbey, one of our APG community members, was in the Atlanta area. And uh, he said, why don't we do a meetup? And I thought, that's a great idea. And so I, I do have some audio of that. If we're, you think we're ready to play that? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Let me see if I can find it. Okay, here it is. So, hey, I'm here at the uh, Manchester Arms in uh, Atlanta, near the airport on Virginia Avenue, and we're having a great time. We have a great meetup here. Uh, the guest of honor is Dave Abbey from uh, New York. And Dave is taking a picture of me right now. And I'm going to hand the microphone to him because he's going to talk to you about this awesome meetup. Hello, Airline Pilot Guy community. Um, this is Dave, as Jeff has mentioned. And what did I say? Uh, oh, yeah, this is, uh, we might want to redo this, but <laughs> we're not redoing no, like Micah, you're on all the podcasts uh, this, is, this is extremely embarrassing, and if you've known how little beer I have, it's even more embarrassing. <laughs> Only on my first pint. Anyway, airline pilot guy, fantastic community. So, as Jeff said, we're here at the, um, oh, okay. <laughs> at the uh, Manchester Arms, and got a group of about 10 of us. And basically, I came down to Atlanta to meet in person some of the great people in the community and have them show me around Atlanta, do a little bit on my own. And just to, just quickly uh, today, I had basically an Acme day. I went to, um, they have an Acme museum in Atlanta at the airport. Um, and they have a, some great displays. And my friend Sylvester took me on a tour of the museum. And then... Um, also, Dispatcher Mike took me on a tour of the uh, operations center, basically where it all happens for Acme. Incredible. This is it. And one more thing that Mike did yesterday was he took me to the flying in his um, in a small beach aircraft, and we had a great time flying around the Atlanta metro area. Uh, we almost got wiped out by uh, net jets, but... You know, if it happened, I wouldn't have been here to talk about it. Mike, uh, Mike got us out of the way, so it was a really great flight. Let me control the plane for a bit, and I didn't know what I was doing. But again, we got on the ground thanks to thanks to Mike. So having a great time. I'm glad we had a great turnout. So I know I'm a bit long-winded, but here comes Dispatcher Tom. Hi, everybody. Uh, Dispatcher Tom here, enjoying the evening with uh, all of our friends at the Manchester Arms. Well, man, a few words. Here we go. Jim, do you want to say anything? Sure. Hi, guys. Uh, dispatcher Jim here. Uh, again, uh, just uh, enjoying the uh, company here. Uh, beautiful evening uh, here in uh, Hapeville, Georgia. And uh, very happy to be out and be a part of the gathering tonight. Awesome. Nice to meet you, Jim. Hey, everybody. This is uh, Sylvester Pittman, and I'm not a dispatcher. Uh, but I am the Airline Guys on uh, Twitter and Facebook, so please follow us, Airline Guys, on Twitter and Facebook. It's great to be out meeting everybody, talking about aviation stuff, and um, this stuff never gets old. Well, depends on who you ask. <laughs> Would you like to say something, Rebecca? 
I'm Rebecca Cochran. I'm Chris Cochran's wife, and I'm here because I'm a supportive wife. <laughs> We're very sorry. <laughs> a suffering spouse. Hey, and this is Chris Cochran, uh, the, the spouse making her suffer. Uh, not a dispatcher as well, just a great aviation enthusiast, but uh, having a good conversation here and, and hanging out and having some beers. And, and uh, yeah, thanks for organizing this. Well, it wasn't me. It was uh, some other people. But uh, I'm having a great time. Uh, bonjour à tous les mons. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm Leandro. Uh, I'm Italian from uh, France. Came all the way for this uh, meetup. Super excited. Really happy to be here. Uh, I'm a private pilot and I'm starting my instrument rating in one week from now. Super cool. Thank you very much, Chip. <laughs> oh, so nice to meet you, Leandro. All right, everybody, it's Dispatcher Mike here. Uh, thanks to David Abbey for setting this all up, uh, coming down to uh, Atlanta on his vacation on the on, on the slow transportation system. I know David's still stuck back in those uh, early 1900s, and these things called airplanes got invented where you can travel faster, but I guess sometimes it's good to take the slow route uh, slow route places. Um, David, thanks for the, uh, giving me the opportunity to uh, excuse to go flying on, uh, on Thursday. There was... Uh, it was really great. It was a gorgeous day to go up flying, get a $100 hamburger, come on back, and uh, got to go underneath the Atlanta Hartsfield final traffic, got to go over it, and then almost got to get hit by an Embraer. But, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, um, I'm thankful for the ADSB in my airplane and the, on my iPad, so I saw it happening. I knew it was happening, so I was able to uh, quickly change my altitude and uh, realize that they weren't going to change theirs, so I better change mine so we didn't make a loud noise over, uh, over Stone Mountain. And then uh, all that. So, like, like I've always said, if you have a chance to come to a meetup or if you see where Jeff's going to be near your area, just uh, give him a shout. Join the Slack team. Uh, f send your email to Hillel. Join that. It's, it's super easy to get one of these set up. And there's, there's community me members all over the place where you can come and join us. So, uh, It's always all nice to have you with us, Mike. Uh, it's such a big part of our community and, of course, his own community with uh, his awesome podcast, Flying and Life. And, uh, wow, um, just this is grand being with all these people here at uh, Manchester Arms. Hope you enjoyed hearing about our little uh, meetup here. And I guess that's it. They're uh, moving on with uh, conversation and such. So. <laughs> Next time, I'll actually listen to the whole thing and realize that I have to uh, edit it a little bit, but uh, apparently I did Nah, we like it in its raw form. That's more interesting. <laughs> so for the audio-only show, uh, I'll cut out that first attempt by Mike. Maybe. Maybe I'll just leave it in there. Yeah. We have we have technical we'll, we'll issues even at meetups. <laughs> so. yeah, very true. Yeah. Uh, Those little recordings are, are rife for uh, problems. Yes. Yeah. Thank you, Liz. Not one of Jeff's smoothest recordings, it must be said. <laughs> well, it, it all depends how many beers he's had, Liz. Yeah, I've had, I had, and I actually, I was actually drinking beer that night because I didn't want to make anybody feel bad, you know, that they were all drinking beer and I, I wasn't. So. <laughs> yeah, because that would yeah. make people feel terrible. Yeah, I know. We, I feel terrible about drinking beer when other people are not drinking beer. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe not so I much. I don't think I've ever said those words. Anyway, uh, so you heard the uh, the Italian in France, uh, Leandro, oh, yeah. Leandro Ferrari. What an yeah. amazing name! I love that name. Um, He's in the chat room right now. I see him in the chat room. Hey, hey, Leandro. Uh, so he uh, was one, as you just heard, uh, one of the folks at the uh, at the meetup, 
And um, he brought a nice gift for me. Uh, he brought me some bottles of this beer. And let me see if I can pull it up. They, uh, I went to their website and it takes, them, takes you directly to their Facebook page. Um, they are out of Paris, Paris, France. And uh, they, uh, he gave me, uh, how, how did I say that? How do you say that? Paris? Huh? Paris? I just heard you say Paris. something. Oh, yeah. I just said we. Oui. Yeah. Ah, ah, okay. Uh, it's called O'Clock Brewing. Not 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock, but just O'Clock Brewing in uh, Paris. And the, uh, the brew that he uh, brought me was called Jetlag. And, uh, oh, nice. A Jetlag IPA. And uh, it was awesome. And I don't know what happened to them all, Leandro, all four of those things. I think they're gone. <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing very a well. Little, a little uh, elf <laughs> came not, in different ways. I'm not doing very well. Go ahead. There were four of them, and there are four of us, and you drank them all? Well, he, didn't, he did not specify that I was supposed to give them. Maybe I should have. Leandro, he's in the chat room right now. Would you, <laughs> was I supposed to give those? I was just those, laughing at you. Was I supposed to give those to everybody else? I'll have to look for them, see if I can find them. Uh, if I can't find them, I might need you to give me some more. <laughs> Did they come from Paris? Is that what yeah. you said? Right, next time you're in oh, Paris, okay. then I'm you sure come back you can over. find them nearby. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. Anyway, well, just take my word for it. They were really good. And uh, oh, he said you're, you're in the clear. He said no, it was just for you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, he's just saying that. <laughs> Saving face for me. Doesn't thank you. Yeah. So anyway, that was a, a pleasure uh, meeting you, Leandro. I understand that you're going to be um, leaving Atlanta, going home to uh, to France uh, soon. And uh, anyway, I was just glad that you were able to join us down there. Mostly, uh, mostly a meetup of dispatchers, apparently. Uh, but uh, anyway, we had a, gr- a great time at the Manchester Arms on Virginia Avenue in Hapeville, which is really close to the Atlanta airport. So um, the next day, so Jeff had a Jeff uh, Colonel Jeff. Uh, Jeff Felmuth had a trip uh, and he was laying over in Atlanta, but it wasn't on Friday night. It was the next night, Saturday night. And so I drove down in uh, really crappy rainy weather, but it was worth it because I got a chance to uh, meet up with Jeff uh, and his first officer, Rob. And, uh, and then after Rob left, um, Jeff and I talked a little bit more and, and made it just a really quick little recording here. Let me uh, play that. If you, uh, if you don't mind. Hey there. I am at yet another meetup, and with a this guy. Now you've you've heard of him so many times. Uh, those of you who have been listening to the show, uh, he has been at such so many major events through the development and evolution of the uh, airline pilot guy show. In fact, this person, who you'll hear in a, in just a second, you'll recognize his voice, has been with me and the show uh, before it was the airline pilot guy show when I was in uh, the air. No, the uh, I'm Captain Jeff. Well, I'm still Captain Jeff. Catholic pilot. He's helping me. He's he's <laughs> he, he's moving his mouth trying to help me. Um, yeah, the Catholic pilot days back uh, 2000 September 2009 October 2009 something like that. My first episode was uh, recorded in Memphis Tennessee, and uh, Jeff has been with the show that long, believe it or not, and uh, got a chance to meet up. He let me know that he was going to be here in Atlanta overnight. And uh, he and his first officer, Rob, were uh, sitting in the, near the bar, not at the bar. Um, and I drove down from Roswell to the uh, airport here to, uh, to gather with them and, and have some great food and 
drink and conversation. And uh, I'm going to let Jeff talk now. Oh, my goodness. I, when you think about Catholic Pilot 1 that many years ago, and it was I just got an iPhone. It was like the first podcast I ever found. And uh, so I've been around for a while. Over you know, 300 episodes is coming up, and I really wish I could be there, but I can't. I had enough fun at the 200 to not remember. <laughs> and uh, I guess I'm the definition of APG syndrome. Uh, but uh, you, you, know, know, you did it the easy way. Uh, maybe. <laughs> uh, it helps being a Jeff. Maybe that made it easier. Yeah. Um, so I can't speak enough about you know, the community that Jeff's been able to develop over the years and you know, the honor I've had of being part of it from the beginning and the friendship I've developed, not just with Jeff, but with you know, everybody in the community from, you know, from England to Australia to New Zealand to South America, the people I've gotten to chat with in different ways and forms and the meetups like this. And, uh, you know, it's been a real, real pleasure just to, to listen and watch the growth of the podcast and just the whole community thing. It's been great. So we talk a lot about uh, our, in our career field, seniority. This is the most senior apg uh, in the, <laughs> no, you're not that senior. But uh, as far as uh, you know, seniority for schedules and vacations and days off and everything else, you got it. You're number one. Anyway, so it's, it's always great to see you, Jeff. Well, thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. Uh, I'll get my special APG plaque one of these years. Not, I'm not worried about it. <laughs> just, just knowing everybody and you know being part of this has been a real life's pleasure for me. It really has. Well, the pleasure has all been ours. All right, that's it. Hey, I didn't have to edit that one, and you could tell I had less to drink that night. <laughs> um, okay, uh, let's see. So, still no Dana. We're still waiting for Dana. Hopefully, he'll join us soon. But in the meantime, I know that, uh, Nick, you were involved in a couple of uh, meetups uh, recently, right? Yeah, last Sunday, uh, down at uh, Goodwood. Um, I won't say much about it because there's an audio coming up. And last night I caught up with uh, Dave Abbey, who we've already heard once. He seems to be repeating himself. He's appearing uh, <laughs> everywhere. Oh, Dave Abbey and uh, Owen uh, from Ireland came across. He's uh, on a holiday here in New York. So it was great to catch up with him last night. Okay. Uh, so do we have to listen to David Abbey again? Uh, I'm afraid so. Oh. Okay. Well, let's do the uh, let's do the Goodwood meetup first. How about excellent? Hi, everybody. Uh, it's Captain Nick, and we are at uh, I don't know actually Goodwood. Uh, Jeff seems to find that for some reason a very amusing uh, word. We're at Goodwood Aerodrome. We're sitting in the old air traffic control tower, which is circa uh, World War Two, and it is absolutely fabulous. Lovely sunny day. Uh, it's great. We've uh, got a whole bunch of uh, APGs here, and uh, I'm just going to go around and ask everyone to introduce themselves and uh, tell us a little bit about themselves and why they're here, why they like APG, all that kind of stuff. So the first man I've got is right here. Hello, I'm Mark Harvey. I'm uh, an aviation photographer as a hobby. You were um, on PT UK, weren't you? I was, yes. I must admit right, that. Right, well, I'm moving on now. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I listen to that mainly. I listen to APG when I can, particularly if I can catch the live shows rather than sort of try and catch up in the car. Because otherwise it just uh, takes too many, too many hours. And uh, quickly, uh, which is your favourite uh, aviation photograph you've ever taken? I would have to say the Sea Vixen Air to Air. 
Oh, that sounds... That's a story there. I'd like to find out more about this. Who's this chap? Jonathan Warner, uh, long-time sufferer, listener <laughs> of APG and, and, and PTUK. <laughs> APG syndrome is a killer. Yeah. yeah. Uh, not aviation-based in my career, but hobby-wise, always been aviation. Where have you come from today? Swindon. Excellent. Yeah, just outside Swindon. Excellent. those grey things. Military. <laughs> now, this man I do know because he's the one that organised this. Uh, here's Ruben Wells. I'm Ruben, uh, private pilot, been flying for about uh, 20 years, came in today from Thurrock, stopped at Red Hill on the way to pick up Stefan. I think Stefan was the one that originally requested the APG UK meetup. Yeah, but we, we don't listen to Stefan, do we? <laughs> no. You don't want to talk to me. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Hi, Matt. Hi. We've got uh, PTUK here, so I don't know quite why they're here. Why are you here? Uh, Carlos made me drive the car. Oh, right. (laughs) You're back to bus driving again. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, great to see you. Thanks very much. Uh, Graham Haley, training air traffic controller here in the UK. Um, Aerodrome and approach, so hopefully I'll be joining them at Heathrow soon. I was at the tower there yesterday, and that was good fun. Excellent. More was, fun uh, here today, though. Is it, was <laughs> much, old, much better equipped tower as well, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Hello. Was old Baldy at work to, uh, yesterday? Uh, no, he wasn't. But, wasn't he? Yeah. Oh, that's typical, isn't it? <laughs> it's definitely a shorter walk to this tower as well. Uh, sounds nice. Anyway, thanks very much for coming. Now, this chap is fascinating. I've got to do a, a whole plain tale uh, uh, interview with this guy, I'm sure. Tell us, tell us exactly what you do. Well, hello, APG crew. This is Armando. I'm uh, U.S. Air Force here in the U.K., uh, being hosted by our gracious uh, Brits in East Anglia. If you've never been there, come visit. Um, I am a CB-22 uh, crew member, uh, the Osprey, there at RAF Hall, and then also a uh, commercial pilot back in the U.S. Brilliant. And now he's told us that someone's probably going to shoot him. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I'll just change my name. It's Jim now. <laughs> Jim. We like Jim. We've got a, a guy who has done what a lot of pilots uh, want to do. He's got his first job uh, with a commercial airline. Uh, tell us what it's like. Awesome. <laughs> it better it's taken 10 yourself. years. Uh, my name's Stuart. I'm from Norwich. Friends with uh, Matt and Carlos. And uh, I just came because I thought it was free drinks today. Ah, yeah. Well, that's, that's when... Uh, that's when Captain Jeff is there and he opens up the APG uh, credit card. Unfortunately, he hasn't given me one of those. <laughs> so, you, so tell us about this new job you've got. Yeah, I'm going to be flying the Embraer 145 uh, for BMI um, from Bristol all around Europe. That sounds absolutely brilliant. Congratulations. Moving on to someone who is hoping to get a job like that before too long. This is Patrick from Northern Ireland, but not there at the moment. No, I'm over in Bournemouth at BCFT, training for my commercial pilot's license and my instrument rating. So I'm about 10 hours into my instrument rating, so a lot of work to do. Excellent. Now, you've got all your ATPL exams done and dusted? That's right, yeah, all's done and out of the way. That must be quite, have been quite a job, a relief when you're finished. Massive relief, yeah, but yeah, yeah, glad they're, glad they're done, yeah. And how's the instrument uh, flying going? Yeah, ask me in another two, three months. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, uh, and the uh, airline you're going to hope to fly for has a sort of four-leaf clover or something on the tail, doesn't it? Yeah, or a big uh, harp, golden harp, maybe. I don't oh, know. Oh, golden harp? I know. We're not even going to talk to you now if you're going to go work for them. Here we have a very famous man who is eloquent <laughs> in the extreme. Carlos. Hello. Greetings, Nick. How are you? 
I'm I'm very well. This Good. is just wonderful seeing you here. I know it's funny we should be up here, isn't it? Really, with all these uh, amazing people. Absolutely, and a fabulous place. It is an amazing place. We've had a good walk around, and we've seen some uh, lovely GA aircraft flying around the area, which has been good. And uh, I think uh, I'm going to go and let Gemma know that I've just booked a four and a half thousand pound flight on the Spitfire. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I just say that? Cut that one. Uh, no, that's that one. We're going to put Join broadcast the that. Join the yeah, exactly right. Anyway, it's lovely to see PTUK here. Right, I'm going round the table now. Who's this young man? Uh, hi, my name is David Collier. I'm a lorry driver. Um, uh, you don't look old enough to come out of school and you drive yeah, a lorry? Everyone says that to me. I, I wonder why. <laughs> it's because I look about 12. <laughs> Very youthful looking pilot. I used to suffer from that myself, but not anymore, as you <laughs> can tell. Uh, yeah, I'm a student pilot here. Um, just finished up most of my training and I hope to get my skills test next weekend. Excellent. That's absolutely brilliant. Uh, here's the lovely Mrs. Anderson. <laughs> Hello, I'm Julie Anderson, and uh, I've just come to see what you lot get up to. Are you impressed? Uh, suitably impressed, yes. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah, there's not a beer in sight, is there? There now, may be later. <laughs> Sorry? There may be later. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. Now, this gent I haven't seen since Farnborough. Uh, you note how to pronounce that, please, Jeff? Farnborough, okay. <laughs> Yeah, hi there. It's Dave Willis here, long-term APG listener. And uh, yes, in Farnborough, 4A, I was there a couple of years ago. Great to meet Jeff and uh, the rest of the gang. And uh, yeah, I thought I'd come along here today and see what um, all the fuss is about. It's great to have a UK meet-up. And uh, I was last here six weeks ago when I had a, an aerobatic flight doing all that washing machine stuff. So yeah, great to be here. That does sound like fun. What was it in? It was in a T-67 Firefly, a little two-seater. Fortunately, they wouldn't let me up on my own. <laughs> very sensible. <laughs> yeah, but very, very good. Yeah, 30 minutes is enough uh, aerobatics for me and then a nice poodle back to the airfield. And uh, did you have to make use of the uh, little bag they give you? No, I was very good. I did open the window on the way home, though, because I got a little bit warm. But no, it was uh, very enjoyable, very exciting. I can see what all the fuss is about, but maybe a hot air balloon trip will be on the cards next time. Excellent. I don't think you have windows on those, do you? Now, here's a man uh, who I know and love who is going to uh, show me around Heathrow air traffic very shortly. Um, Adam, lovely to see you. Uh, good to see you again, Nick. Um, where's your lovely wife? She's uh, not here. She has probably just finished work about 10 minutes ago. She was on a morning shift this morning. Excellent. Who have we got under the chair? Uh, this is Betty, who some of you might have seen photos of before. Uh, yes, being a tart this morning at, uh, at Goodwood. Um, but, yep, yeah, she likes going out visiting airfields. So we'll go for a walk later. So what's new in your world? Uh, keeping busy at Heathrow, um, working on a lot of projects uh, that hopefully we should come to fruition in the in the new year. Try and reduce the, the amount of time you spend in Ockham and Bovingdon. Stack at Heathrow. But you, you know I'm a, I love those places. It's, well, it's so give nice. Give me your flight details and we'll make sure you spend more time. There. <laughs> <laughs> right. there must be someone on the company I don't like. Who's this? This is Stefan Cordry, uh, flight of Red Hill student pilots, done about 20 hours, and uh, it's my first APG meetup. Well, actually, uh, we don't get them very often in the UK. So, uh, what do you think? Is it fun? Yeah, really good. Um, great location, great chatting to everyone so far and talking aviation. So, yeah. And what, what do you do to make enough money to be able to be a student pilot? Um, 
I work in marketing, so that kind of funds it. But um, yeah, I wouldn't say I can afford it. The, uh, it's been bankrolled by Barclay Card, I think. So <laughs> <laughs> we've all done that before. We've all done that before. Okay, around the table here uh, to the chap that it may have come the furthest. Um, is that right? Oh, Isle of Wight, so... Oh, no, no, I, there was someone here earlier I was speaking to who've come... Oh, of course, from Cornwall, but Isle of Wight is not very far away, but there's a bit of water between us and them. There is, I'd hope to fly over it and pick you up there. Yeah, that's right, so this is Richard Adams, and uh, he was indeed hopefully going to fly 172 over and uh, land, and we were going to go for a little trip around the Isle of Wight, but somebody broke the aeroplane. They did, not me, I hasten to add. Are you sure? Yes, definitely, but with no prop, no, there's no aircraft, so. Oh, well, yeah, you've got a very heavy glider. Um, so, uh, you're just flying for fun? Yes, just a PPL, yeah. And do you get many hours in? Not as much as I'd like, no. Yeah, <laughs> I expect that. Bad weather. Oh, yeah, and this is the wrong time of the year. Anyway, thank you very much indeed for coming, lovely to see you. And finally, over to this fine gentleman here, who I know flies a lot of model aircraft. That's right. Yes, it's Mark Heffer here from Hastings, which is only about 60 miles away, so we're not too far. Now, you uh, used to uh, actually fly hang gliders, is that right? I did fly hang gliders. Um, claim to fame there, I actually filed an air near miss for two Jaguars once. <laughs> uh, both of them? You, you nearly hit both of them? Well, technically I was on the ground at the time, but they flew over so close I could see the pilot looking over and we could smell the av fuel. It was an amazing experience. <laughs> well, what, well, it was an experience for me what the pilots thought when they looked down and saw a couple of guys with a hang gliders waving at them I, I really don't know <laughs> that sounds like fun now 250 feet is the normal minimum height for a Jaguar low flying was that about right? absolutely not no we're on the top of the downs we're on the top of the downs near Alfriston in East Sussex and I could clearly see the pilot turn his head and look at me 50 foot maybe a little bit higher but not as much as 100 I love it. I love it. Excellent. Anyway, um, what are your current aviation hobbies? Flying anything radio-controlled, really, and that's it. That sounds brilliant fun. Now, have I missed anybody out? No? Excellent. Well, that's it from us here at Goodwood. Uh, lovely to be here. Lovely to see all the APGers. Thank you very much indeed for coming. And uh, I'm handing back over to Jeff. Well, thank you, Nick. Oh, so professionally done, yeah, with the music and everything, and uh, uh, very oh, nice my job. Pleasure. But what a, yeah, what a great bunch of guys. We were so lucky, people from all sorts of backgrounds, some really uh, true professional people, some uh, new joiners into the aviation industry, some people with just flying interests and just listeners. It was uh, a fantastic mix, and they're all great guys and girls. Well, your presence isn't only demanded in the UK, but apparently uh, you're quite the celebrity in the New York City area as well. And uh, here's a little snippet uh, with uh, our APG community members, Owen and Dave. There was an Englishman, an Irishman, an American. And they were flying across the Atlantic in a twin-engine airplane. Ooh, what? Let's say a Boeing bin liner. Okay. Now, being a bin liner, halfway across the Atlantic, an engine fails. And being a bin liner, it can't maintain its height. The aircraft's drifting down towards the ocean and the captain leans back and shouts through the door, you're going to have to throw everything overboard. So the Englishman, the Irishman and the Americans start ripping all the stuff out of the galleys and throwing it out the doors and they're throwing seats out 
And eventually it's just the three of them left. There's nothing left inside the airplane. And the captain says, we're still going down. You're going to have to throw something else out. And the Englishman looks at the other two and says, this is for my country. And he jumps out. And the Irishman, <laughs> the Irishman looks at the American and says, this is for my country. And he throws the American out. <laughs> <laughs> So, here we are in a, in a lovely barbecue joint on Long Island, and guess who is here with us? It's Owen. <laughs> I am the Harp Chat uh, cabin crew member, and I am so happy to be in the States right now. I've come over to uh, New York for 10 days, nice long holiday, and I uh, can't wait to, to get started with this much-needed holiday. Uh, Owen has had a tough time of it recently. We know. Who are you going to meet up with while you're here? Um, so Matt is coming. Matt Smith is coming over um, from the PTUK. Uh, he's coming over on uh, business, so we'll we'll uh, get together and um, and we'll be staying in Manhattan together, and uh, that'll be that'll be uh, main man Mike are involved here. Yeah, so I believe we're meeting up with uh, Micah and a few others later on in the week. Uh, that's fantastic. And uh, uh, who are you staying with? Uh, no, let's see. He sh- he's right here. Uh, who's this bloke? Uh, is this is your landlord, yeah? Yep. Hey, everybody. It's uh, Dave Abbey here. And, yeah, I've, I've uh, when I heard Owen was coming for, you're coming for 10 days? Oh, my God. But I can put him up for a few days, and I think we'll have to uh, part ways. But, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm glad I, I met Owen today at the subway. He, he flew in. From Dublin, and uh, but part of what he brought did not arrive with him. Oh God, yes, we almost forgot that you flew over with an Irish airline, didn't you? I did, I did. I flew over with uh, the Irish national carrier, and um, they didn't take my checked-in luggage with them on that. <laughs> I don't believe that they left your bag at home. Yeah, they left a. I, I believe it's in Dublin. I'm not. I'm, I'm a little bit skeptical as whether it's actually left Heathrow Airport, but I believe it's in Dublin and it's coming tomorrow. That's that's what they've told me. Well, we love airline flying, don't we? Oh yeah, oh yeah. So anyway, have a great holiday here, Owen. Great to see you. Thank you very much, and Dave, for putting this fine young man up. And uh, let's just say a quick goodbye. Thank you very much, Nick. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been a lovely, lovely meal and a great start to the holiday. Yep. Thanks again, Nick. Great meeting with you today, and thanks for all you do with the podcast. Take care. Bye, everybody. It's such a funny joke. I have to add. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mike has said it was one of his. Uh-huh. I think he invented it. Yeah. Oh, he did. A couple of centuries oh. ago. Okay. Uh, yeah, at least at least two centuries ago. I've broken another copyright, apparently. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I think that one's definitely in the public domain. It's been around long enough. Oh, okay, that's good. It's a bit like singing happy birthday. You're right. Look who I see in the, uh, in the uh, Hangout on Air. Yes, joining us, former regional jet pilot and now mainline Acme, soon-to-be captain, Captain Dana Colton. Hello, Dana. Good afternoon. Wow. Weird seeing this setup. 
and actually being on on air for change. It's been a while. It's been three weeks. I don't know. It's been, yeah. So I what? Think, you, I guess you have a lot of catching up to do here. What? Uh, what have you been up to the last few weeks? What, what, explain your absence. Well, it's uh, certainly great to be back in in presence of such uh, great talent on air. As I listened to the last couple of episodes uh, via when I was working out and doing various other things. So uh, great to catch up with everybody and and, and listen. Uh, you know. I had a very unique experience and opportunity, and that is uh, had the opportunity to go down and visit Havana, Cuba, which for uh, Americans has been off limits since 1959, I think, for the most part. Um, and it, let me tell you, I was completely floored at how nice the people are in in the in the uh, city of Havana and the Cuban people are. Uh, very uh, courteous. Uh, gracious, pretty shocked at how poor it is there. Um, however, I think, uh, you know, the regime change, uh, even though it's still with Raul, uh, they, he has a, a whole different perspective on, on what, what's in the world. Um, and I think they're, they're going to move forward. Really need to take a, a ride. I took a, a ride in 1952 DeSoto uh, convertible. Really enjoyed that. Got to got to use a little of my Spanish skills to go ahead and communicate with the, the locals. And the taxi driver was fantastic. He took us all around Havana, and we we got a very uh, uh, in depth, detailed tour of of different areas. Even got to tour a cigar factory. That was that was really cool. Uh, and I have no idea. I don't smoke, so uh, yeah. How many how many virgins were in the cigar factory? Because I understand they roll the cigars on the thigh of a virgin or something, isn't that? Well, after, after I was there, Nick, there was none left. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> Good to have you back, Dana. That didn't take long. <laughs> well, I am a cigar virgin, so I've never had a cigar. <laughs> okay. So, fair enough. Oh, I understand <laughs> the context now. Okay. Yes, yes, exactly. So... Uh, <laughs> It was it was really I mean that's, uh, that's when I was going last week I was unavailable and when when you did the show, um, just uh, just been enjoying life working as little as possible but still working. Uh, so then the reason for the whole cruise uh, on a very short notice actually was because uh, Julie was able to uh, finally secure a new position that she's very excited to be uh, in this new company away from a major bottling company based in Atlanta. Yeah, that was uh, kind of a, a long-term uh, nightmare for her, and her it's it's like she's a whole new person. So that's really the reason why we went on the cruise is to celebrate her her success. Um, and we uh, we we just had a a grand old time. I, I would highly recommend uh, if you live in the states, do it before the borders close down. Uh, there was a UN vote yesterday, and Israel and the United States were the only ones to vote against any further uh, expansion of Cuba. Cuban uh, economic activities or blockade or whatever. I, I didn't read the whole thing. Um, but if you're, you live in another country and you have access to Cuba, you know, before it becomes too commercialized, the, the buildings there and, and uh, the, the atmosphere, go visit it because it was a very unique experience. And I've been to, you know, like, like the rest of us here, been to a lot of different uh, places in this world, and it was, uh, it was really, really unique. So go if you can. Excellent. So that's what I've been up to. 
Well, we're so glad that you were able to join us this week for uh, for this week's show. So I'm so back. happy to be here. Awesome. Yay. Awesome. <laughs> wow. Well, we've uh, this has been a huge introduction uh, period on this uh, particular show. Thank you for bearing with us if you're still listening. Um, but, uh, we had a lot of things going on this week, uh, in our off show, uh, time, uh, the meetups and such. So, uh, Oh, come on, Jeff. Everybody still loves listening. Come on. Uh, Everybody's well, listening. They're all not everybody. There. Trust me. Not everybody. Okay. <laughs> um, but, uh, that's okay. Most of, most of you enjoy kind of getting caught up with all the, the personal stuff and, uh, very quickly, um, let's do a, a coffee fun thing and then we'll move on to the news. What do you think? Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the Java Java and it loves me. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. All right. While they continue singing in the background, the Java Jive, uh, let me tell you a little bit about the coffee fund. That's your way to... Become involved uh, in the in producing the show, helping us produce the show every week, and uh, a couple different ways to do that. You can uh, learn about the different ways by heading over to the Airline Pilot Guy website, airlinepilotguy.com/coffee, and you'll see that we have a couple different ways to do it. And uh, the first one, the oldest way, is what we call now the Coffee Fund Classic method, and it is uh, basically a PayPal donation, and you can make a a one-time donation or a recurring donation, as Steve Trumbull does. And uh, every month we get a nice donation from him. Thank you, Steve. Um, but most of our folks now are using a service called Patreon. They're patrons of the show. And uh, that's uh, patreon.com slash guy. And there you can sign up to um, give us a little bit of money per episode. And... Uh, since the last episode, we have a few new patrons at Patreon. They are Teakettle15. Don't know exactly who that is, but that's Teakettle15. The SWLing post, and I'm gathering, I went to the website and I gather it had something to do with um, shortwave uh, ham radio stuff. So thank you for uh, becoming a patron. Uh, Mark Lebrowski. Uh, up there in Lake Norman, uh, just north of where uh, where uh, Steph is, and Eric Greiner, and Jessica Sanders. So welcome to the Coffee Fund Cadre, one and all. And again, if you want to get involved in the Coffee Fund, become part of the Coffee Fund Cadre, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Boy. Stand by for news.
from the Hamilton Spectator. I don't know if that, is that uh, Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, perhaps. I don't know. Uh, but this is a story it has nothing to do with Canada. It has all to do with India. The uh, airline Spicejet Limited, an Indian budget carrier that's seen its stock zoom tenfold in three years, wants to open up the third biggest aviation market even more. That means targeting the billion Indians who've never flown before, either because they can't afford it or because they don't live near a functioning airport. The airline is in talks with Japan's Satoshi Holdings uh, to buy about 100 amphibious Kodiak planes that can land anywhere, including on water, gravel, or in an open field. The deal, valued at about $400 million, would help SpiceJet capitalize on Prime Minister Neandra Modi's ambitious plan to connect the vast nation by air without waiting for billions of dollars in upgrades to colonial-era infrastructure. Airports are in short supply in India, SpiceJet Chair uh, Ajay Singh. I don't know how you pronounce that, but uh, anyway, a, we're just going to call him A.S., Lots of the growth in India is happening in small markets, but those small markets have little or no connectivity. So we are looking for a solution where we can get flights to places where no airports exist. So these um, airplanes um, are amphib- amphibious uh, float planes, basically. The Kodiak uh, single-engine um, uh, turboprop airplanes. Look, uh, They remind me a lot of uh, like a Cessna caravan, that kind of thing. They look a lot like a caravan. Yeah, you could put them on floats. Yeah, and apparently, I don't know if they're going to, they're all going to be the float plane models, or maybe they're going to have some float plane models and some that have the big giant tires that they can just land. And I would imagine that's probably what they're going to do because if they're talking about landing on gravel or, you know, just unimproved fields and that kind of thing, uh, they're not going to be able to do it with the floats. Um, I would imagine that if you well, have, they can, no. but it's well, yeah, it, yeah, but the floats, I mean, you can land on, on land, but it, it has to be a relatively prepared surface, I think. Grass. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, I mean, do those floats have little wheels? But they're certainly not designed for a rough field landing. No, that's what they're I mean. going to have to. Yeah, various. They do, they do have various. wheels. Uh, it depends on the float plane manufacturer. I mean, the uh, float manufacturer. But uh, yeah, I think um, if they're talking about landing on you know really unimproved uh, land uh, places, then uh, I would imagine that it would have to have those big like twenty nine inch wheels or whatever. I think that's one of the well, options. They, they can attempt it. They can attempt it once. They probably wouldn't want to land back on water again because it may not float so well. Ah, good point. That's why we have Dana. Maybe more of a submarine. <laughs> yes, point. it's an excellent submarine. <laughs> it's our technical expert. I mean, this sounds just a lot like uh, what's been going on in Canada for years, mm-hmm. doesn't it? I mean, the Canadians get around uh, so well uh, using various models of light aircraft, uh, some of which carry quite a few passengers. They can uh, pull them into lakes. They can land on uh, the beaches beside them and all these things and it's about time i think india had a go at this because uh it's ideally suited for, for moving uh all these people around yeah i thought it was a quite a novel well not a novel idea but uh, for them i guess it is and um, they're they're trying to make um air travel as um as uh, prolific as they can prolific there we go um uh-oh yeah. I'm just wondering where they're going to get the pilots from because we're starting to have enough problems finding pilots for major carriers, let alone for um, you know these dozens of dozens of aircraft they're going to be looking for pilots to work on. So I don't know. Hello? How's that work? Can you hear me? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I can hear you. I'm back. I'm back. Um, lost my connection. Oh. 
Tell you what, why don't I let me go to the very lowest bandwidth option I have here. So you might just see like a, a ghost image of me. Whoa. <laughs> yeah, you look like you're <laughs> just a blob. interview F and you don't want them to know your identity. <laughs> yep. You know, on the I need to change my voice. Probably, <laughs> probably very sensible. <laughs> okay. Well, I love technology. Except for when it it's doesn't so work. Yeah. Do you feel like in this day and age, the end of 2017, everywhere at this point, right? Like mm -hmm. that works and it's reliable. Yeah, but apparently uh, hotels aren't really interested in having bandwidth available for people to do video shows. I don't know why. No. Yeah, no, they, they probably never will be. That's, yeah. that's, that's really inconsiderate on their part, I think. Maybe I should just turn the video off completely. What do you think? Yeah. Now you can just well, see my, good. yeah, that's less distract. That's less distracting actually. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You can just see me, uh, my little avatar, uh, you know, sounds like, uh, or looks like it has sound waves coming from it. Um, uh -huh. okay. really pretty mustache. Well, thank you. Oh, um, oh, I forgot to t mention that. Oh, shoot. Let me go back to the show notes. Uh, just a reminder. We talked about it last week. Uh, the Movember challenge is still in play. Um, first officer Craig started up a, um, a group of um folks um and we're trying to raise some money for i forgot what the uh, uh what the cause was again uh something movember here where's that link do we have that um uh-huh it's in the yeah channel. uh let's see i'm quickly opening that up and hopefully that won't dump my bandwidth um it's the moteam.co uh slash captain jeff's mustache crew anyway just look for the link in the show notes and you can join captain jeff's mustache crew and, um, yeah, and join us in the month of, uh, November by growing out your beard and mustache. I guess the goal is to, uh, see who can come up with the uh, mustache that's closest to Captain Jeff's and no, Steph, you're not allowed to participate. <laughs> Sorry. And I went to the, I went to the salon today. Ah, so. okay. Good. Good. Everything's um, taken care of. <laughs> okay. I was going to I was going to say they have to be old like you too, right? Uh no, you don't have to be old like me. Thank you, Dana. Well, for it to look but for it to look like yours. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, you, can, you can use some dye or something in it. Uh, uh Don't you don't you miss me? Uh yeah, I really do. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to mention uh before I moved on to the news uh that I, I again neglected to you know, I prepared these show notes and it's it's good for me to look at them uh, once in a while. Um it was um, Nev's birthday yesterday, I believe. Uh, happy birthday, Nev. Um, he is happy in birthday. some tropical yeah, locale up. right now, I think, enjoying um, his his birthday uh, birthday week, perhaps. So uh, mm -hmm. happy birthday. You don't look uh, an, a, a day over 60. Uh, you, I don't know how you do it. No, I don't. I'm pretty I, sure he's not that old. I don't think he's actually 60 yet. <laughs> no, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, actually, I, I know how old Nev is. But oh, I don't. Say. I have no idea how old. Uh, he looks to me like he's in his 40s to me. So, um, so happy Great. birthday, Nev, uh, from the entire APG community. I saw a lot of uh, love being thrown your way yesterday. So, uh, but I just wanted to mention it on the show as well. And then also, I believe that uh, Carlos's lovely wife, Gemma. Uh, as uh, celebrating a birthday as well. I'm not sure if it's today or yesterday, but uh, somewhere in this time frame. Do you know stuff? Mm, no? It was today or yesterday. You are okay. correct about that. Anyway, happy birthday to the both of you from the APG crew. 
All right. So we got that. Happy birthday. Happy, Happy birthday. birthday. Yeah, yeah, I guess we should do like um uh, like this, applause, and then all kinds of noise. There we go. Nice. <laughs> okay. Now, um, back to the news and, uh, the, uh, uh story about the, uh, Indian, uh, company spice jet. I guess we're finished with that one. Aren't we? Or we were still talking yes. about it, I guess when I lost all my bandwidth, but, uh, I don't think there's really much to say other than that's uh, kind of a cool idea. And I hope that they're successful with it. Yep. All right. Exactly. So, um, Someone mentioned, I believe, in your uh, meetup at uh, Goodwood, uh, Captain Nick, that uh, they were almost had a collision in their glider, and just so happens that uh, there was a collision, an actual collision, of a large glider. Um, well, I'm not sure how large it was, but in the Netherlands, uh, the glider was soaring up and down the Dutch North Sea coast near Hillegom. When the right-hand winglet was struck by a consumer drone, the drone was destroyed by the impact. The wingtip sustained serious delamination. The glider safely returned to Langefeld airstrip. So, what was the drone consuming? I don't know. Probably birds. I don't know. <laughs> Gliders. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's true. A, a, a wingtip, uh, or uh, what do you call these? Winglet of a glider is what what it was consuming. Has a picture here in the uh, article. It will be in the show notes. You can take a look at it as well. But, you know, we're starting to see this more and more. And we've been talking about it for quite some time that it's just a matter of time. And then all of a sudden, it seems like in just the last few weeks, we're hearing all kinds of stories about uh, collisions with drones, airplanes with people in them colliding with uh, drones. And in fact, I think hopefully we'll have time to get to it in the the uh, feedback session uh, section. Uh, there is a, uh, a note from somebody talking about a uh, or maybe uh, I have it in the feedback folder, but anyway, uh, about a C-130 uh, that actually collided with a uh, drone uh, earlier this year, and the investigation regarding that. So uh, it's happening more and more, sadly, and uh, yep. ho- hopefully we won't uh, hear of one that is uh, turns out to be a, a really bad event. Um, finally. The last thing we have here in the no, uh, news, I said nose, let's see what I'm doing there, uh, was a Delta Airlines Boeing 757 was flying along, minding its own business, uh, descending into, I guess it was a, a charter uh, from, um, trying to find the article here. Minneapolis. Thank you. From Minneapolis to Chicago Midway. Why don't you continue with airport. this? Sure. They were carrying the basketball team of the Oklahoma City Thunder. And they were descending towards Chicago when the nose cone of the aircraft received a large dent. Uh, it sounds like not that big of a deal until you see the picture. Um, but the crew continued the flight for a safe landing on Midway's Runway 31 Center. Uh, they suspect something hit the nose of the aircraft. I would agree with that statement. <laughs> um, a bird strike is actually being suspected, but I don't know what type of bird strike causes that type of damage. Um, a very big bird. Actual bird from Sesame Street. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> a frozen chicken, usually. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, I was going to say, I mean, there would be some evidence of bird parts left over, I would imagine, unless yeah. it's flying through a massive rainstorm. But even even if it's trying to fly through a massive rainstorm, the crew would probably see remnants around the windshield where mm-hmm. it struck. So I don't know. This one kind of is 
suspicious. Maybe it wasn't a, a lost drone or something. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't, all the, you know, the paint is only really scraped off around the edge where it's been ended in. I don't see a whole lot of like evidence of something, something else that was solid, like metallic or, or made of metal or plastic or something else. But I don't know. I could be completely off there. I don't know. But you're right. There's no bird parts either that you see at least easily in these pictures. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's the thing. I mean, did they wash it? But, but is this the washed off version? You know, that they, they, of the photograph that they put out there? Well, I don't think so. Well. I don't think so. I think some of these were from the players that were on the plane, like mm-hmm. as they got off. Oh, and well, actually, I don't know. They got, it looks like it's from down on ground level and they got off via. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Well, I, I've, uh, I've had a bird uh, going into Hong Kong. It was a uh, what we would have called a shite hawk, but I think they're just a big uh, kite, a damn great big bird. And um, we whacked it, and it didn't leave the radome indented like that. The radome popped out again, but you could tell from the uh, witness marks on the radome where it had deflected in and then popped out again. That's what, about the same circle as would have occurred there. And there was very little blood and guts on that because we hit it at relatively low speed. So uh, we didn't splatter the bird all over it. It's a big, damn big, strong bird. I mean, the bird obviously didn't survive. There's some fishermen down there who will have plucked him out of the water and cooked him. But, uh, uh, yeah, that, uh, that's about what would have happened. Uh, the Radome Solar Aircraft, um, uh, I'm assuming the same, um, made of frangible material, they will actually uh, break up. If you, if needs be, uh, but they're also quite flexible. So if possible, the radome will pop out again and it can be used again. I think the aircraft flew again that evening. I, uh, somebody had uh, mentioned in the comments that, uh, it's not completely, um, out of the realm of possibility that the radome had some kind of a, um, internal structure failure. I guess they, there have been cases where radomes just kind of collapse upon themselves for whatever reason, but that doesn't seem like it would be uh, uh, very, uh, I don't know. Yeah, we, we had one on the show uh, previously, didn't we, Jeff? It turned out to be uh, some rather dodgy part that had been mm-hmm. fitted to yeah. a rather dodgy airline. So Right. And that wasn't that the one where they thought it was like a drone strike, too, or something? Yeah, something like that. It just turned out to have uh, collapsed internally. So, uh, yeah, could have been that. But, uh, well, all I'd say is what's the last thing the bird saw before it died? It's rear end. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Steph, for You're cleaning it up. <laughs> I thought I'd jump in there real quick we, uh, with some uh, the, uh, verbiage. Sensed uh, where that one was going. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we'll, hopefully we'll find out what happened uh, with that um, in the future. Actually, you know what I was going to say? I was going to say that it's beak, but that's okay. You ah. guys, the, uh, the level, that's you. That's all on you guys. Okay, that's all enough. on us. Sorry. All yeah, right. Well, <laughs> it would have been look for, looking at its beak. Okay. Uh, I guess now time for the best part of the show, which is the end. <laughs> no, uh, the uh, your your feedback. Here we go. Captain, incoming message. Thank you. All right, let's start with uh, Len. Len uh, asks us a question about a departure out of. Hong Kong. Here we go. I'm going to read his feedback. He's Len on Lantau, which is a kind of key here in the story. 
I have a feeling you may be covering the recent immediate wrong turn after takeoff by a 747-8 at Hong Kong. This led to a flight over Lantau Island. While I was asleep in the vicinity of, of the flight path at the time, I have to admit that I missed the spectacle completely. Those GENX engines are certainly quiet. I took advantage of a day when little fragrance was reducing the visibility over the harbor to take a picture of the northern shore of Lantau. I added a blue swoosh around the approximate flight path. Uh, he says not to scale using the MK1 eyeball only. Uh, the little knoll to the right of the swoosh has an elevation of around 1,500 feet. There's a box on the SID chart reading, Warning, due to terrain, right turn must not commence before Porpa slash Rover. That's a, a navigation or waypoint. Despite this, there have been several recent cases of early turns. A, uh, Hong Kong is suggested or congested with ATC during, doing their best to keep things moving along smartly. This leads to conditional clearances such as, quote, after right turn to ramen, high speed approved. Locally based crews will understand that the right turn is assumed to commence at Porpa, not immediately. Porpa is around seven nautical miles from the runway. Those who only occasionally fly into HKG or operate there for the first time could easily misunderstand this is a clearance to turn right immediately and increase speed. Perhaps Captain Nick or Miami Rick could comment on flying into HKG as an occasional visitor. Last but not least, thanks for uh, thanks a lot for the great show. Take care. And again, that's from Len on Lan Tao. Every time I, he puts LOL, I, I'm thinking he's laughing out loud. But uh, I know it took me just a second. I was like, oh, <laughs> I almost kidding. said that's that, and then I went, no, that's Len on Lan Tao. That's the way he. Uh, that's very very clever of you. Um, so uh, the Aviation Herald actually uh, covered the incident and uh, said that they were investigating it. And this was back in uh, September, uh, late September. And I'm not sure what they've, um, but it sounds to me that that's exactly what happened. Uh, perhaps there was just a miscommunication. Uh, the, uh, uh, the operator thought that that meant to go ahead and start the right turn right away and uh, resume their normal speed. Uh, but if you look at the radar pl uh, plot on the satellite imagery on the Aviation Herald article, which will be in the show notes for you. Um, you can see that they went right over this ridgeline and they only cleared the peak by 600 and some odd feet. Um, big old 747, big old jet air airliner. <laughs> Surprised that didn't wake up Len uh, in, his, uh, in his house there on Lantau Island. Yeah, well, that's... Uh that's new modern technology. It's so quiet. Even if it flies right over your head, you can't hear it. Yeah. That could have been a major crash if, uh, you know. Well, it, it could have been. And quite honestly, uh, even into the old airport, it's the go-arounds that uh, were probably the most dangerous uh, and taxing part of these. Um, you fly the um, arrivals and departures fairly commonly. Um, this guy, of course, uh, made a mess of a, a departure, which is a concern. Those departures um, are designed to track over the water in between the high ground. And, of course, the big, very taxing thing about Hong Kong is the fact that there's a great deal of high ground around. Uh, so you've got to follow the uh, uh, departure quite accurately. Uh, and if you've got uh, a terrain system into your built in your aircraft, I'm assuming the 74 uh, at this variant, uh, which one was it? 748? Mm -hmm. Should have 
Yeah, you'd have think it would have had a terrain display, and I can't imagine a crew getting airborne without the terrain display on at least one side. We, It's more or less compulsory out of it. You'd be stupid not to have a display up on one side. Usually the pilot flying has it up, and the pilot uh, monitoring might have radar up just to try and pick up any thunderstorms around. Um, so you, you would be turning towards an area that's glaring red at you, uh, indicating that you know it's extremely dangerous terrain. So I'm not quite sure what the crew thought they were doing. That just sounds mad. So, the, uh, uh, in the pre preliminary report, it says at approximately 2,000 feet, the enhanced, enhanced ground proximity warning system, the EGPWS on board the aircraft was triggered with a mode to a visual and oral warning, terrain, terrain, pull up, enunciated. In response, the pilot flying reacted and the aircraft turned left away from the high ground. The aircraft evaded the high ground by approximately 670 feet. And they uh, subsequently... Yeah, not a lot. Yeah. Not a lot. But I mean, get care in preparing your departure, reading the briefing notes, looking at the departure, checking out the terrain should set you up for this. So I'm not quite sure what the crew were thinking of when they flew this, but there you go. Yeah. Plenty of other dangerous places in the world to operate. Just Hong Kong just happened to be one of them. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, it's a little joke about fragrance refers to the fact that uh, in English, Hong Kong means fragrant harbor or might have. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Interesting. Okay. Learn uh, something new for the day. Yeah. There you go. Fragrant harbor or possibly a spicy harbor uh, or spice harbor hmm. from its original days. That's, that's just sort of literal translation of the Cantonese. I see. I, I was just assuming he meant you know, uh, smog or something like that. I guess maybe that's what they call the fragrance. No, no. It's very <laughs> much an in-joke, particularly with the old airport. Uh, oh, okay. When you landed, landed at Fragrant Harbor because uh, there was a huge uh, drainage ditch down the side of the runway that was full of sewage. Oh. And as soon as you landed, you know, the pressurization dumps and the ram air vents open. The first thing you got in the entire aircraft was this appalling stench of human waste. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everyone used to grin at each other, especially the old China hands, and go, welcome to Hong Kong. <laughs> I mean, there, there, is a joke about, uh, there is a joke about Bob Hope was on the, uh, in the cockpit on one of these aircraft. I think it was a BA-74 landing. And uh, the captain leaned across and said, oh, I do apologize uh, for the smell, uh, Mr. Hope. Uh, it's um, human excrement. And uh, he's Bob Hope is reported to have said, yes, I know what it is, son, but what the hell have they done to it? <laughs> <laughs> it went through a fermentation process. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my. Absolutely. So, hey, all that information, that, uh, the, that factual information that you glean from listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, you're welcome. Free of charge. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. Here's an interesting one, I thought, uh, from Ralph. He writes, congratulations on a terrific podcast. I've been listening for a few months now, and I'm hooked. I definitely have the APG syndrome. APG syndrome. We're terribly sorry to hear that. I've started from episode one and enjoying every minute, learning lots of things. I've been a plane spotter for over 40 years and an aviation enthusiast for an even longer time. My first flight was on an Aer Lingus Vickers Viscount in 1964. I have a few questions at this time and more to come as I listen to more. Don't CRJs, Canadian, Canadian regional jets, have evacuation slides? 
A recent crash report alluded to that. How do they evacuate? Okay, so we'll we'll take that one first. And we have an expert on the panel who has experience. Well, at least we have somebody who has experience <laughs> on the panel here. Uh, Dana, Captain Dana here, you used to fly the CRJ, did you Did you not? I sure did. And uh, no, there are no slides on the RJ. Uh, the Ford uh, door, which is the primary door that you enter into, um, has built-in stairs into it. So it, they're permanently attached to the uh, forward door. And then the overwing exits, of course, you slide off the wing and you're right onto the ground. It's very, uh, may, maybe four feet, four and a half feet off the ground from the back of the wing. So, uh, I, you know, I don't know for any uh, overwater operators that use the aircraft. I'm not sure. I'm sure they have to have some type of flotation device, uh, maybe in you know the overhead uh, you know, special compartment up there. But the aircraft that I flew domestically, we did not have any type of uh, slides for evacuation because it wasn't necessary. We're not that far off the ground. So when I was doing the research on this uh, question that Ralph had regarding that, um, I thought, well, that can't be right. And then I started doing a little, I, I found out that the 700 and 900 version of the, um, of the CRJs, if you ever seen them on a, on an airport and you'll notice that they are kind of leaning on the ground, they kind of lean down or they pitch down a little bit. So they're higher up in the, in the latter part of the airplane and, and kind of pointed down in the front. And so someone was saying on one of these forums, and I think that, uh, it's been confirmed by another person I was talking to, uh, today that the, uh, Bombardier actually designed that it designed them that way to keep the door height below a certain height so that they could get away with not having to uh, figure out how to put um, slides and that kind of thing um, in those, in those doors. So, yeah. And, and I never, I never flew the 700, 900. Um, so that actually does sound logical. Uh, I, I don't know if it's true, but, uh, you know, both the 7 and 900 both have internal stairs built into uh, the door, just like the uh, the uh, 50, uh, you know, five, the uh, CRJ 200, which is the 50-seater, uh, has the built-in stairs. So that's actually probably, I, I can never figure out why they would tilt it down like that. They just look really kind of cool and bad, but I'm not going to use the other word. Um, boss. Uh, boss. <laughs> Bass. Yeah. Bad bass. Uh-huh. We got it. <laughs> um, and just take the B out there, right? So, uh, yeah, they it, it really, if you look at 700, 900, they look really kind of kind of cool. So, But, yeah, that makes sense because both the 700 and 900 both have integral uh, stairs built into them. So, yeah, that would avoid the, the extra weight, and that would be a huge consideration for, for a regional jet, the weight. Uh, especially, I, I don't know if uh, people remember the uh, – crash in charlotte with the uh, 1900 that was taking off they had a, uh, a a weight issue as the fa in the investigation the ntsb in the investigation found out and shortly after that on the regional jet side and i think for also the main line but it wasn't as big of an issue uh, they changed passenger weights the the average weight in which you know passenger is supposed to weigh by the fa's definition yeah they took it up and it really on the especially on the 50 seat aircraft it really, really hurt uh, the ability to carry 50 people bags and fuel. We were leaving people 
fuel or bags and if the weather was down obviously um you'd leave the the people or the bags behind not the fuel so uh, it it was it was a huge deal and so weight is critical on those smaller aircraft on any aircraft i mean but they're there it's far more critical on on the rjs so that's why they're they're very it's very important they leave those slides off okay interesting and and i was going to say if i can get certain person on uh, a text here i might have an answer for us in a few minutes so continue okay all right uh the next question that ralph has is do you write down atc instructions as they are told to you or do you keep it all in your head with everything else going on it would seem be to be easy to transpose numbers etc do you need to keep a record of all the instruction given to you for a particular flight uh so i, I think we could all Probably answer this one. Uh, Captain Nick, do you write it down? Or uh, Steph, do you write it down? Or what do you do? What's your technique? It depends. So if I'm in an area that I know well and I'm familiar with the frequencies and the airfield and the directions I'm going to be given, um, sometimes I don't write it down because I'm familiar enough that I'm not going to forget that. Um, If I'm going somewhere that I'm not familiar with, I tend to write things down because um, it is really easy as soon as you start to read it back. You know, you get three digits into, you know, a couple more digits of a frequency. And you go, uh, what was that again? Was that a two five or a seven five or, um, you know? So I, I just think it's easier to write it down if I uh, am ready to do so when I'm given an instruction. Sometimes it happens, um, maybe a little bit before you're expecting it, or you'll get an instruction you weren't expecting. And in those cases, they don't get written down. But if I have any questions, I'll just ask for clarification again. Okay, and in our airplane, uh, we I tend to if it's something to do to be done immediately, altitude change, heading change, I'll just dial it straight into the uh, flight control unit, the FCU, and um, you know goes in as soon as the guy more or less says it. Uh, if it's already a frequency, I'm uh, dialing it up in the second window of our frequency change box uh, as the guy's talking, and uh, if it's something to be done in the future, so like. Next time over the Occam hold, leave heading 090 and, and 220 knots, because you're not going to do it like that's for three or four minutes, I will type it in the scratch pad, uh, which is the bottom line of our MACDU, um, our flight control computers, where you normally enter data. You can just type uh, it in and it appears in the scratch pad, and you can delete it afterwards if you're not going to uh, enter it in anywhere. You're just using it as a reminder. And uh, I just typed it in there. So there you go. I think that uh, many of the co-pilots that I fly with, um, and I think it's something that they um, teach us in training, or at least uh, the folks that are uh, new to the fleet uh, to use the scratch pad on the FMS to uh, type on, type in especially complicated taxi instructions, that sort of thing. Uh, some of us just uh, do it the old-fashioned way and you know, have a, like a little piece of paper on the yoke and we just jot down things or... Some of us have such a, just an amazing uh, brain and memory that they can just, it's just like, you can remember every, everything that people have told you. It's not me, by the way. Like, like <laughs> you me. owe me $25. Yeah. I can usually remember that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't remember that. <laughs> what do you think, Dana? Same thing. Are you a scratch pad? Are you a scratch padder? Oh, yeah. I'm, you know, it just uh, jotting things down helps me remember things a whole lot better. Um, I yeah, you know, was right in front of me. I have my scratch pad. I have paper and pen. That's usually the handiest thing that I do. Um, yeah. Computer wise, sometimes I go over to the FMS and use that. But uh, 
anything that I can jot something down on that I need to, as far as any instructions is always helpful because, you know, I have, I suffer from this thing called CRS. Yeah, stuff. Stuff. It's a family yeah. show, right? So it's stuff. Can't remember <laughs> stuff. So, yeah. And by the way, I do have an answer to that uh, last question when you want. Okay. What's the, uh, what's the answer? The answer is, is that the aircraft sat too low to the ground. So it's the length of the aircraft that was made it a significant uh, risk of tail strike. If the aircraft sat any lower, so they lowered the front nose section to make sure that the aircraft would clear in the back and not tail and not strike the tail. Oh, really? So it has nothing to do with the um, evacuation slide. It has nothing to do with the evacuation slide. You know, how about that? Yeah. So yeah, there's your answer. It's it's because the aircraft length had to be significant uh, is is significantly longer than than the two hundred, and it was too low to the ground, so they had to adjust it to not strike the tail. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Uh, he and continues. My buddy who is an instructor on the airplane has been on the airplane for 18, 17 years, something like that. 16 years, however long okay. it's been around. So he's pretty credible. Okay. So there I'd you go. say incredible. <laughs> he is incredible. Okay. Uh, does the higher pitch angle of the L-1011 versus other aircraft play a role in the angle of attack at landing? And uh, I can answer that because I flew the uh, L-1011. Um, well, it says other aircraft as well, so I guess we can all pitch in on this one. Um, does it play a role in the angle of attack at landing? Well, I can tell you, I think what you mean is uh, because it's a very pitch high kind of an airplane, uh, will, will you still have a high pitch angle coming in for landing or high deck angle, uh, D E C K. Um, and, uh, yes, uh, you'll, you'll note that, uh, you still see the L 10, 11, not L 10, 11s, the, um, MD 11s and MD 10s flying around at, uh, FedEx. And, uh, you'll note that compared to other airplanes, uh, coming in for landings places that those airplanes are considerably more nose high when they're coming in. And, uh, that's just because they they were designed that way to kind of have a higher higher pitch angle, and of course because you have to uh, increase your angle of attack coming in because you're flying more slowly, et cetera. You know that it it looks like it's really way up there in the nose. Um, I don't know else to answer that. But. Well, you know, and then something I think as soon as I say it, you're going to remember it. Direct lift it was a very unique uh, mm-hmm. thing to the L ten eleven, and. Uh, where I remember really learning about that, and if you ever have the opportunity to go there, is the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. They have an entire exhibit on just that fact. Uh, it's part of the uh, reason why the deck angle on the L-1011, it was, it was a unique direct lift system, and that is use the spoilers and the ailerons um, effectively to uh, control the uh the role in the aircraft. And I, I, I can't remember all the specifics on it, but it has something to do with it. Well, what it is, is a direct lift control. And basically on a normal airplane, like almost every other airplane out there, when you want to increase or decrease your rate of descent, as you're coming in on a glide path, you lower the nose to increase your rate of descent. You raise the nose to um, uh, decrease your rate of descent. And so the pitch actually changes. Well, on the L-1011, when you were in the landing flap setting with the gear down and all that, you know, you're in the landing configuration the direct lift control system would uh, come into play and the spoilers would 
reset to a neutral position of seven degrees, I believe six or seven degrees extended. And then uh, when you made an adjustment to your glide path, if you wanted to increase your glide path, you push forward on the yoke, but the pitch didn't really move. And uh, you just dropped the spoilers would come out a little bit more and you just drop a little bit faster. So you're like on an elevator and uh, same, you know, the opposite is true as well. If you wanted to decrease your rate of descent, um, you would just pull back a little bit on the stick and then the spoiler handle would move forward to the closed position and the spoilers would uh, kind of go to the fared position. And uh, you would, so basically the whole, uh, the whole idea was to keep the pitch angle constant, not necessarily to make it higher or lower, but to actually keep it constant all the way down and make adjustments on the glide path based on using the control surfaces. And it was all automatic. See, wasn't that excellent? Yeah. I jogged your memory on it a little bit. Oh yeah. I remember the, that was one of the weirdest things when I was learning how to fly that airplane, uh, getting used to that direct lift control system, because at first, especially in the simulator, of course, even, you know, almost every airplane you're in the simulator and you feel like you're flying a big rubber band. Um, but when you were in the landing configuration in the simulator of trying to fly an ILS and you were trying to kind of get used to that direct lift control, it was like your brain had trouble syncing up with it. And then the other odd thing about it for me is that every time we were in that landing configuration, I noticed this big old giant spoiler handle actually come out from the stowed position and it's actually moving around and it's kind of reacting kind of the, in the opposite way that your yoke is being moved. And it's just weird. It's just like, what is going on here? It's just, but after you do it for a while, finally your brain kind of um, compensates for everything and, and gets used to the, and you're all synced up. But uh, it's an interesting system. Just like, you know, those moving sidewalks, uh, we have them at the Atlanta International Airport. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but I've been using those moving sidewalks for so many years that when you um, actually walk on one of those moving sidewalks and it's actually not moving you, and you're telling yourself, okay, don't make any kind it's of like compensation a, a, because they're not moving. It's like a broken escalator. They're just stairs. Yeah. But it's for some reason it really messes with your mind. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Same thing. You, you start, you act like you're maybe 90 years old uh, going up and down the stairs when the escalator is not exactly. moving because your brain is already compensating for the motion. Yeah, it's weird. the one that the one the moving sidewalk that actually freaks me freaks me completely out is the one in Memphis. Have you ever been on that one? Uh, Memphis, yeah, yeah. Well, you step on it's like Elvis on it. No, it's it's like walking onto a springboard. It's it's a rubber, oh yeah, a rubberized uh, moving walkway. And as soon as you step on it, it's like it's pushing right back at you. It's like almost like jumping onto a trampoline. So every time you take a step, it's really weird. And it just, I don't know what, what it is, but it just really freak. It, it freaks me it out. It just puts a spring in your step. It, that's it all. sure does. I, f- <laughs> I feel like a kangaroo. Uh, okay. Finally, moving on. Uh, last question uh, that Ralph has. Does VFR apply only to daytime flight? Do you need to land by sunset? And what is the difference between IMC and IFR? <laughs> so in the notes here, I put, VMC, VFR, IMC, IFR, you know, like what is, what's the difference here? What, I don't understand all this. And, uh, who would like to take a crack at that one? Staff. Okay. So, uh, if we're just talking about the, the different acronyms that you've listed there. So Jeff put in VMC, VFR, IMC, IFR, VMC and IMC refer to the meteorological conditions that you're 
up and flying in. Um, so VFR is the visual flight rules that you would use if you're flying in visual meteorological conditions if you are not on an IFR flight plan. So I've made that exceptionally confusing. Um, <laughs> so let me back up for just a second. Glad here. you took a crack at this one I first. Know, I know, right? I'm just digging a bigger hole than the... <laughs> So VMC, um, that's a, a category of flight, uh, like I said, the, the meteorological conditions where you can perform a flight under visual flight rules, meaning basically that you can see and avoid other things. So the weather has to be good enough for you to be able to do that. Um, you know, in the uh, U.S., that's you're talking about three statute miles of visibility. Um, I'm talking about uh, remaining clear of clouds by it depends on what class of airspace you're in, but I'm not going to get into that too much. But generally, um, uh, oh five, gosh, 500, 500 below, 500 below, 1,000 above, above. 2,000. Very cool. Yep. yep. I had to just make sure I had that straight in my head. Um, and if it's less than that, then generally that's instrument meteorological conditions. And in which case you need to be, uh, have a instrument, um, uh, certificates to be able to fly in all of that. Um, and that goes into a whole different category of training. Um, but to come back to your first question, you said you need to land by sunset if you're flying VFR. Here in the United States, uh, you do not. That differs in other countries. Um, you would need to be uh, night current to carry passengers here in the US, which means that you have to do three takeoffs and landings um, every 90 days um, at night. So after Oh, gosh, how they define it. It's after sunset, but it's after um, civil twilight. Civil twilight. Thank you. The words I was looking I'm for. I'm just here to help. Yeah, yeah. Just help me along there. <laughs> <laughs> so, all of that's published. You can find all of that data. Um, I was the one that put you on the spot, by the way. Yeah, I know you were. So. <laughs> that's why I'm here that's to help. Right. <laughs> I'll find my words eventually. Um, so yeah, so let me make sure I, I sum that up and make sure it's clear as it's clear as mud. So VFR flying is visual flight rules. Um, in in basic basic terms, conditions where you can see and avoid other aircraft that you can fly um, with visual reference to the ground. Um, it's here in the United States, but like I said, differs in other countries. Um, you do not need a separate license or rating or anything along those lines to fly at nighttime. Um, night, night training is part of your private pilot certificate here in the United States, and you can land at night um, current, so three takeoffs and landings after civil twilight um, within the last 90 days. Passengers to do that at night. So, and become night current again if it's just you in the aircraft solo. You can do takeoffs and landings at night to make yourself current again so and then you know it's kind of semantics but imc and ifr imc is just those instrument meteorological conditions a lot of times refer you know just general terms again flying without reference to ground being in the clouds um you need to be on an instrument flight plan flying with instrument flight rules to be able to do that and so. in contact with the draft control exactly yeah, it's it's, so, it's easy uh, to sum it up. It's VMC and and uh, IMC is just the meteorological conditions, which you said, and then the VFR and IFR are just the rules on which you have to 
have to uh, abide by and to fly in those conditions. And interestingly enough, or maybe it's not interesting, but um, 99.9999% of the time, air carriers are operating uh, under instrument flight rules, IFR, even if it's clear in a million uh, and you could, you know, definitely be using visual flight rules. Uh, we are required as uh, oper- part 121 operators to operate under instrument flight rules. Being class a, class a airspace, you have to be on an IFR flight plan anyway. Yeah. So, which, a, yeah. It's flight level 180 and above. I can't actually here in the remember the last time I flew a VFR flight. I mean, it was over 20-something years ago. You, you flew it into JFK? Right? Uh, no, you cleared for the visual approach, so that's... Oh, it was an IFR, yeah, nope. it's done on an IFR plan. It's not a, it's no, not a it's VFR. No, it's still an IFR plan. Is it? Yep. You're right. Yeah, it really is. Anyway, I flew an ILS. <laughs> Yeah, but no, that's a, that's a good point. A lot of people think that when you're flying an airliner and you get, you get cleared for a visual approach, you're not a visual. that you're flying under visual flight rules, and you're not. You're still on an IFR flight plan, but you have to maintain VFR cloud clearance criteria. So it's get, it gets confusing. <laughs> it really does. So and, and one that we don't, exactly. one that's uh, is common out in, in GA that that some a lot of people may know about, um, but we never use uh, in the airline world officially is a contact approach. And that's where you have the preceding aircraft in front of you and con- call them. We, they, you know, they always ask us, uh, you know, do you have the aircraft in front of you in, in, in sight? And we obviously say a yes or no. And usually more times than not, because we were more times than not flying in, in instrument on an instrument flight plan, but in vi- visual conditions, uh, you know, we say, yeah, we have the aircraft in sight. If, if it goes to the point where the visibility goes down to, two or three miles, you can actually fly what's called the contact approach, and that's following the preceding aircraft in front of you. And that's, that's still considered a um, still an IFR flight plan. However, you're now in a visual environment. But we don't. And, you know, that is, as we don't normally do that, but there are, there are occasions where I've actually been cleared. They don't say clear to contact, but they don't use that terminology, but that's exactly what we're doing. If, they, if you can't see the, run, uh, the runway or the airport, but you can see the preceding aircraft and you will, you know, most likely be able to see the uh, airport and environment when you get a little bit closer, they'll clear you the visual approach. They say cleared the visual approach uh, just, just by sole reference to the uh, airplane that's preceding you. Yeah. And that's, uh, so I guess it's it, sort of like a contact. Yeah. Approach. Air traffic control actually can never clear you for a contact approach. You have to actually request it yourself as a pilot. Uh-huh. So, but we, you know, we, we basically, as you said, Jeff, we, we basically do that all the time, you know, without it yeah. officially being said that way. So. Right. Right. All right, cool. Well, I hope that that uh, vegetable soup uh, or alphabet soup, I should say, but I must be hungry. Uh, the alphabet soup that we just threw at you and all the rules and conditions and everything didn't confuse you more than <laughs> uh, when you, uh, before you asked this question, Ralph, but uh uh, those of you listening, uh, again, we hope we didn't confuse you too much. But I think Sif did a fantastic uh, job. Yeah, she did. She did an she excellent did. job. Yeah. So well, I'm just I will say this too because because rules do vary in different countries, and what I'm referring to is here in the U.S. So yeah. Um, well, you, comments in the chat room about uh, you know VFR on top, and that was not Ralph's question. I'm not going to get into that at the moment. And yeah, so that's that's what I was. 
I was thinking the same thing because somebody said, I think it was Dana, you know, with visual reference to the ground. And I'm thinking, well, not always. You could actually get a VFR on top clearance where the clouds are below you and you can't see the ground, but you're still technically VFR. Correct. Which is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, and like I said, it varies from country to country. So, um, yeah. if you're a pilot in whatever country you're in, you should know the rules and regulations that apply to you to operate in that and, country. And just, and just a note on, I just want to add a little something on VFR on top, uh, from a flight instructor's perspective, my perspective, if you're not an instrument pilot, you shouldn't be doing VFR on top. Uh, and the only reason I agree, I, the only reason why I say that is because if you get to your destination, wherever you're going, your VFR on top, that's all fine and dandy. Well, what happens if you can't get down through the clouds and now all of a sudden you have a fuel situation, et cetera, et cetera, can domino real quick. So, it's not recommended. Even if the forecast says, you know, take off out of here, you can probably pop through a few holes and get on top and be BFR. And when you get to your destination, it's, it's clear in a million. Uh, that's uh, that's not always the case. Um, one night in particular, I remember coming back VFR from uh, middle Georgia up into the Atlanta area. Forecast is clear in a million. Come into uh, Peachtree DeCab Airport in a single engine uh, 182 and shot the approach to minimums and had to go miss because it went to a quarter mile in fog within minutes. And that was on a, on a CAVU, uh, clear visual, uh, clear and unrestricted visibility uh, night and uh, barely made it into Fulton County before the fog rolled in there uh, on, an, on an ILS right down at minimum. So, you know, it's VFR is, is uh, you know, really should be, um, used uh, on very 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 clear days um and or stay away from clouds and flying on top of clouds i would never do that vfr all you have to do dana is just look for an airport there above the clouds yeah you can you can find it yep the ding it's kind of like star <laughs> was a star wars they, they had the, the uh, one of the, one of them they had that the floating city above the clouds when yeah when han solo the, went to see his buddy if you can find there you those, go. you know, might be a multi-trillionaire. Hey, uh, we didn't we didn't cover this in the news um, when it occurred. Probably should have, but we didn't. Uh, there was an Air Air Asia flight that uh, had to return to Perth, Australia, after a mid-air scare, according to the headline. Uh, this was sent in by both uh, Glenn uh, from Wellington, New Zealand, and from Louisiana, Steve, and they were both um, asking uh, us to uh, comment on this story. Uh, Glenn says, I saw this on the BBC today, an interesting flight with a lot of panicking passengers. I'm also certain that the cabin uh, attendants weren't in tears and screaming, and it is uh, just a couple of passengers. And uh, Louisiana Steve wrote, please see the attached article from CNN. Okay, so we have one from BBC and CNN. I wonder when the public start calling for robot flight attendants to fly on their pilotless aircraft. I can't help but wonder how true this article is. And then he references this, uh, this incident that uh, apparently this AirAsia flight, an Airbus A320 carrying 151 people, uh, lost pressurization. And they had to make an emergency descent. And we practice these a lot in the simulator because it's very, very important for us to maintain consciousness by getting into air that's thicker and has more uh, the partial pressure of oxygen is higher. And in the meantime, what do we do? Well, we start sucking on oxygen. And that's why the uh, the jungle of 
of uh, oxygen masks drop in the back of the airplane and you put them over your mouth. It has nothing to do with smoke and fire. It has everything to do with oxygen. And you need to uh, put those on and start breathing that so you can maintain consciousness. And of course, we have a little bit better mask up in the cockpit uh, because it's more important for us to really maintain consciousness and awareness of what we're doing. And uh, the um, news articles were saying that passengers were complaining that the uh, uh, the Air Asia cabin attendants were yelling uh, directions to the passengers to stay seated, to keep down, to uh, breathe through the oxygen masks. And guess what? That's what they're trained to do. They're supposed to be doing that. Uh, fortunately, most of us don't get uh, into these situations, don't get to experience them. But when it happens, yeah, it can be upsetting uh, when the flight. Now, maybe these flight attendants were a little bit too exuberant with their yelling and screaming. And uh, perhaps they did look like they were startled and afraid, but, uh, and maybe they were, uh, but I think that they were making more of this than, than they should have. Uh, but I don't know. What do you guys think? Oh, absolutely, Jeff. I mean, uh, we've had this problem uh, before. I remember a uh, uh, evacuation on a runway at Gatwick and they had it on a local talk show. Well, it wasn't actually local. It was, you know, the BBC. And the commentator was saying that, uh, oh, well, these girls obviously lost control. They were screaming at the passengers. Well, when you've got a, a, a young girl with a petite voice who's trying to uh, make loud, strident commands, you know, heads down, feet back, or di- instructing them and uh, directing them uh, to uh, evacuate, they're going to sound a little bit squeaky and, uh, you know, they're not screaming. They're shouting as loudly as they can. It may sometimes sound a little bit like screaming, but 99% uh, out of 100, they're going to be just doing exactly what they're trained to. That's the way I, I figured it went down. Of course, you know, interestingly, uh, no video or audio of the alleged screaming um, surfaced flight attendants. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, isn't, isn't it true, though, in most, uh, in most situations, people tend to overhype and over over exaggerate situations mm-hmm. you know people observe it i mean uh, you know it just it's just in human nature just look at uh look at uh um unless there's video i mean the whole situation with that that gentleman being dragged off the airplane we don't know what happened before that and uh you know what happened is that now we have the video but imagine if that was being described by somebody in, in, in sitting in the seat versus having the video, they probably would sit, sit saying they're beating the guy, he, they're you know, throwing him all over the airplane, and uh, you know you could go on and on, and they were yelling at him and blah blah blah. So if you if you don't have uh, a video or audio of it, people are going to over sensationalize it. I think. No, yeah. I mean the video- yeah. Well, I think in any in any situation that's stressful to someone, um, and that's different for everyone. People tend to remember things, uh, you know, you know, it's not like your mind is taking a objective video recording or audio recording of things as they happen. Um, your emotions, your adrenaline tend to, um, on your perception and your, and how you remember these events. So, um, if it is stressful, you're going to remember it as being perhaps more stressful than it actually was. So. Very good. thought. I thought of you too, yep. Dr. Steph, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we had a, um, we had the PA. Is there any medical personnel in the aircraft today? <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> well, I don't know. If, did, you, did you hear last week's episode? Did you listen yeah, to it? Oh, yeah, I listened to okay. it. Okay. 
Yeah, I listened to it. Yeah, the uh, the three of you, the emergency doctor. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to be bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The emergency room doctor. Yeah, so, but anyways, yes. Well, hopefully, good but outcome, whatever, whatever it was. Yeah, we didn't have to divert. So, you know, that was shortly after takeoff. I imagine it was okay. Good. Oh, good. Happy ending. Always. Hopefully. And Glenn from New Zealand also wrote us this. Uh, thought you might like this article and the shocking customer service from what used to be the world's favorite airline. Of course, that's. Glenn talking, uh, and this is from bbc.com news. British Airways apologizes for bed bugs on Canada flight. British Airways has apologized to a Canadian family after they were bitten by bed bugs on an overnight flight. Heather, last name starts with an S that I cannot pronounce, was flying from Vancouver to London with her eight-year-old daughter and fiance earlier this month. After spotting the bugs, Ms. S., complained to the flight attendant, but was told she could not change seats. She said she and her daughter woke up the next morning covered in bug bites. British Airways offered an apology to the family. We've been in touch with our customer to apologize apologize and investigate further, an airline representative said in a statement. British Airways operates more than 280,000 flights every year, and reports of bed bugs on board are extremely rare. Nevertheless, we are vigilant and continually monitor our aircraft. Anyway, uh, this lady said she had alerted the flight attendant, was told nothing could be done. She was like, oh, okay, sorry about that. We're sold out. We don't have anywhere to move you. And once they landed, Ms. S said she and her daughter were covered in bug bites. So anyway, um, yeah, bug, bed bugs, not a good thing to have on the airplane. But, you know, if there are no (laughs) seats to move you to, I'm not sure exactly what it is that they were supposed to do. Do you have any ideas? Captain Nick, I mean, I'm sure bed bugs happen all the time on on your uh, airline, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's a little little bit unfair. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding, Um, of course. Uh, uh, I would think that it would be far from that, actually. (laughs) Well, I think every airline suffers from the uh, rare but um, occasional infestation of uh, some kind of bug. Uh, Mm -hmm. Mice are often a problem. Uh, You know, you, you get... Uh, containers in uh, from all sorts of sources, uh, both into the cargo hold and into the cabin, uh, and you get people bringing all sorts of things on. Uh, it, it's continual flow whenever you've landed of uh, bits and pieces coming on. You do go to some exotic exotic locations where there are um, various uh, insect and other types of problem. And if uh, any vermin uh, or insects, uh, binding insects, any kind of insects really are reported to uh, on the airplane, uh, it's usually dealt with uh, pretty efficiently. We can uh, fumigate the aircraft, uh, do the entire aircraft as a large resort. Even if uh, you know a zone is uh, sprayed and treated, then uh, it doesn't remove the problem. Then we can usually get at it. Um, so yeah, it's very unfortunate when it happens. If you have to be the unfortunate person that uh, has spotted the first occurrence of it, um, then yeah, that's pretty terrible. And if there's nowhere to move you to, that that's really unfortunate what are you going to do there's there's no alternative we can divert the airplane because of insect bites probably not um so uh yeah it's just unfortunate and uh you know i'm afraid that's part of life you can go into a really nice class hotel and you might be unlucky and end up uh getting into a, a bed that's not perfect and you might get bitten uh it happens everywhere and um you know there's not a lot you can do it's not very nice but that's life. 
I'm, I'm sure, you know, what were they thinking that they would just be allowed to stand up for the remainder of the flight and for landing? I, uh, that doesn't make sense, but I guess there's no spray bottle or whatever of any kind of a pest. Um, no, I don't, well, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think the bed bugs would have an oxygen mask, so you could probably depressurize the airplane at 35,000 oh, feet. That's good. Thank you, Dana. What a good idea. <laughs> we do actually uh, carry sprays uh, for de- certain destinations. So we always used to spray in and out of Australia. Um, we always uh, spray in and out of uh, the Caribbean, and that's just local um, natural, sometimes uh, restrictions so you don't carry bugs into uh, an island nation that doesn't have them you know, and doesn't want to have anything new or strange there. So um, sometimes you get some of those bottles kicking around the airplane, you could use that. But generally speaking, no, we, we, it's such a rare thing. I mean, mice are the worst because uh, they uh, seem to have a real affinity to electrical cabling. So if you see a mouse on board, that airplane is usually grounded, and preferably until they can find the dead mouse after they've put poison everywhere. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I got on an airplane the other day and there was a warning for the cabin crew that there were, um, cockroach, um, bait traps, uh, out at the back Lovely. of the, yeah. So, I mean, mm. uh, it's, did, did the plane come to South Carolina? Because <laughs> no, here we big... just call them the palmetto bug. You confuse, you can confuse the cockroaches with mice in South Carolina. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> <laughs> I think oh, can, I can think if you go to Texas, you can confuse them with a horse. <laughs> <laughs> with a horse? Yeah, well, I've been bit by a mosquito they used to call the Hexum Gray, which was the size of a horse. If you get bitten by more than six of them, they could carry you away. <laughs> wow. Peter Pan. There you go. Yeah. So it's, it's just part of life, and it's not a very nice part of life. It's the kind of seedier, you know, things we'd yeah. rather not know about part of life. I can yeah. I can see the passenger's point though. I mean, how how's the passenger? I mean, the bed the bed bug issue aside, obviously it's not much that that can be done at that point. But the passenger doesn't know uh, that the aircraft sold out, so uh, maybe they don't understand that. Well, I just got a down. Yeah, but she said that the, the flight attendant. Yeah, yeah I mean, the, the cabin crew did explain it though. Well, she said that was her answer. Yeah. We're sold out. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have anywhere for you to move. Yeah, and understood. I mean, that's but. In that situation, she may have not heard and understood that, that the aircraft sold out. She just wanted to get the, the H out of that seat, the H-E-L out of that seat. Um, so, yeah. Well, I'm sure that uh, British Airways uh, compensated them appropriately I'm sure. for this. We're all not, we, we are all not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect airline out there. Yeah. Stuff happens, yeah. right? That's right. Stuff. Yes, stuff does. Uh, Andreas the third, you're wondering why I'm calling Andreas the third. He says, hello, captain Jeff crew. My name is Andreas and I'm living in the Northern part of Sweden in a town called Ostersund. Yes. I know how you love the letters with the dots. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Danish, uh, love to put all kinds of really weird marks on their letters. Anyway, I think you called me, uh, you can call me Andreas the third, because I think I'm the third Andreas now giving you feedback from Sweden. I've been listening to your podcast from episode number one and have enjoyed every hour. He puts, he really stretches it out. I guess that's a, some kind of a pimp there. Sorry. 
when I started listening to APG, I wasn't a pilot, but after a while, when I had a list, I had listened to the APG, let's see, when I had listened to the APG and a couple of other very nice aviation podcasts, I get very inspired. So I thought to myself, maybe I can be a pilot too. I've had a passion for aviation all my life. So I contacted my local flying club and before I know it, I'm in ground school. I did my school exams, only nine, and when I passed them, I was qualified to do the written exams for the Swedish Transportation Agency. Only nine more tests with 20 questions in each test. I finally passed them and started to fly in the spring of 2015. I took flying lessons in the summer of 2015 and 2016 and finally did my check ride on the last of August 2016, and I passed. Congratulations. All right. Okay, that's enough. All right. Stop. Thank you. They're not listening to me. Darn them. <laughs> they get a little obnoxious, a little a little uh, punchy after we've been recording for a while. Uh okay, so he passed um in August of this or of 2016. I was 43 year 43 years old at the time, so I felt very proud of myself, so it's never too late to become a pilot. I did my training in the Diamond Star DA-40 uh, TDI. I guess that's the uh, diesel, diesel version, yeah. right? And that's a very nice airplane. I think Dr. Steph has tried it once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A couple times. Not, no? the, not the diesel version, but the DA-40. Yes. Okay. Now to my question. And I think Captain Nick is the one who can answer this first question. Okay. Captain Nick, you ready? I'll do my best. I've, not- I've noticed on the Airbus 330 that there are some models called 330E, and I have I want to find out what the, or no, I found out that the E stands for enhanced. Can you explain the difference between the enhanced model and the classic? And do you have any of those enhanced models in your fleet? Uh, well, second part first. No, we don't. Um, the uh, first part second. Um, the A3-3300 enhanced was kind of uh, increased, um, weight version of the uh, 330 that was brought out, I think, in about 2015. Um, so uh, they increased the maximum takeoff weight from uh, our version, which is 233, up to about, by about nine tons, up to 242. Um, they put a center tank into it, which ours doesn't have. That's, that's sort of a belly tank that sits between the wings. It gave it an extra range. Um, so in, it can go 242 tons up to about 6,100 nautical miles. And, uh, they tweaked a few things, which just gave it a little bit of a uh, fuel efficiency. They, they reckon it's 2% uh, more efficient. Um, the enhanced versions were, uh, sent to Delta, uh, in May, 2015. Um, and, uh, Scandi, uh, got some, uh, SAS, Scandinavian Airlines. Uh, that was the first European uh, one to get. I mean, it wasn't a huge change. Um, those uh, uh, tanks and that weight had already existed in the 340-300. And the 330 is really just a twin-engine vers- uh, version of the 340-300. Um, so, I mean, I think they had all the all the tanks and all the fuselages, and they just had to, you know, match the them up. Uh, and get the engine power right so that it could do it. Uh, 
And uh, I, I don't think it's got a centre gear. I'm not absolutely certain. Uh, that was on the 340-300. We had a little two-wheel centre gear that helped take some of the weight that allowed us to increase it. But we went above 242. We went up to 257 tonnes with that. Um, so that's probably when we needed the extra centre gear uh, just to carry that weight on landing and uh, moving around on the ground. So that's it, really. Uh, I mean, it wasn't a huge change, um, and there I think bigger changes with, with others. But it was uh, just given a little extra, um, I don't know, a top up on its performance and range and weight carrying capability. I thought that uh, maybe the three thirty was taking some kind of a pill, but uh, apparently I'm wrong about <laughs> little that. Little blue one. Okay. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> you have to take them very regularly if you want to keep enhanced running. <laughs> If your enhancement lasts longer than a certain period, then you have to go. More than four hours, you have to you have to go yeah. to the emergency room. Yeah. Exactly. I thought that the I thought the only difference between the uh, three thirty and the three thirty enhance was just a couple of inches. But <laughs> well, there you go. Learn something new. On, um, wow, and you guys so, talk about me, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what where your mind is. I don't you know. There's nothing dirty about that. No, I. Uh, yeah, uh, he has another question here about single engine approaches. If you have been forced to shut one engine down, and you're diverting to an airport with a lot of crosswind, uh, if you have to, sh for example, if you have to shut down your right engine, do you prefer a right or left crosswind, or will it really matter? Uh, can the wind help you in some way on approach and landing with just one engine? Uh, hmm. Yes, it can. So uh, explain. Well, uh, of course, um, if you think about it, if you've only got one engine going, you're a twin-engine airplane, and they're out on the wings, it wouldn't be quite so bad for you guys on the on the mad dog. You're thrust close to the center line. But um, when you put all that power on to, uh, say, go around, uh, and you've only got one engine, the, the aircraft will tend to um, yaw because you've got all the thrust coming on one wing, and it'll tend to, therefore, roll in... Uh, the direction uh, of the um, um, dead wing, the engine with the dead engine, the wing with the dead engine. So if you've got a crosswind coming on that side, it'll uh, help lift that wing. So uh, it'll make the aircraft just a bit easier to control uh, on both the approach and if you do a go-round, if you've got a crosswind from that side. So uh, if there is a choice, I guess, um, you would probably land with the crosswind into your uh, dead wing. So, yeah, I think that's probably uh, fair to say. Having said that, most of the aircraft we operate are quite capable of uh, operating with uh, whatever crosswind is on limits. And although it's a good airmanship thing, it's not essential for the control of the aircraft. So you don't have to have it that way around. Um, and, uh, you know, if it just happens that way, it can be advantageous. I've got that right, haven't I, guys? Absolutely. I would agree with that. I mean, you know, it's better to have, have, well, I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm thinking more reversing, trying to stop the airplane. You know, if. Yeah, but in that case, the crosswind may not be that big of a deal once you're on the ground and you have the nose wheel down. No. Um, but. That's definitely a factor as well, and we and I think for most airplanes, um, if with in a single engine situation, aren't the crosswind limits? Uh, well, I guess they're not really officially reduced, but that's something that we do think about. You know, it's best to try to land in the air land the airplane on a runway that has as little crosswind as possible. Yeah, yeah. And finally, he says, "I want to push for the two hundredth show of the Plane Talking UK." 
on the 20th of January next year. I think it's going to be a terrific show. I'm just holding my airline tickets in my hand, so I'm going to be there. And I hope I will meet some members of this fantastic community in London as well. Bye for now. Andreas Norton. Uh, hey, excellent. Hey, Andreas. I'll see you there, I think. Yay. Well, yeah, I'm still waiting maybe. to see if I get the time off, but I, I'm going to make an appearance if I can. I'd be stupid not to. It'd be great fun. And I'd like to go over there, too, if I can. It depends on my schedule and things happening in my life. But uh, I'd like we'll to go as well. That'd be fun to go. All right. Let's continue. Ahmad writes, Hello, APG family. It's been a while since my last feedback. Here's my latest. When's aloft? Info. How is it derived such that it appears in the nav display as an arrow direction with a number speed? Is the aircraft able to measure wind speed direction for different altitudes or only for its current altitude? Or does the aircraft get a broadcast from the ground or nearby aircraft or nearby weather satellites overhead of the wind speed direction so that it appears on the nav display? I'm working on an EFIS tool concept that allows wind info display to be managed by the crew, but I first need to understand how the current wind info system in current airplanes works. Thanks and Kavu to you all. So who would like to tackle this one? Well, I kind of answered it by email, but I, oh. we can do it in the show. It's great. Okay. Um, so the answer is that uh, you get wind speed and direction uh, on your display. It's comparison of uh, well, the aircraft knows where it's moving to, what direction and speed it's going, what height it is from the aircraft instruments, but primarily from the inertial reference system. Uh, and um, it can uh, compare um, where it's actually going with where the inertial say it's going. Um, and the difference is obviously what the wind is doing to it. So uh, um, if uh, it it has a, a speed of uh, X and the inertial saying the speed is Y, then obviously the difference is perhaps a bit of headwind or something. So it can display that difference to us, and that's where we get wind, and it's an instantaneous inertial wind uh, from the inertial reference system. Um, so we get wind from other sources uh, to help us predict uh, our time at arrival, um, you know, further ahead down our routing, and we get that um, in the form of a forecast which we feed into the computers, so it uses those winds to calculate where you're going to get in the future. And they are updated with your current wind as you uh, motor along, if the two aren't uh, the same. And we can download those um, forecast winds uh, on board the aircraft at regular intervals, usually about every six hours. We get them when we take off anyway, or before we take off when we're prepping we get a set of winds then that is usually fairly current. And the reason they're usually pretty good and accurate is the fact that most aircraft, particularly flying over remote areas uh, like the Atlantic or over the Pacific or whatever, and of course uh, everywhere in the world really, um, download their individual winds at regular intervals uh, down, with, and all that data is gathered and then assembled uh, so that uh, the aeronautical planners can get a a genuine uh, idea of what the, the winds at all the various altitudes of all the various aircraft uh, is at that moment. And they can use those winds and then the pressure patterns that they build up through their forecast charts to predict what the wind's going to be in the next few hours. So uh, that's kind of how, how it goes. We have an instantaneous readout in the aircraft and we have forecasts which are built up partly from all the other aircraft around us and uh, from the Metman's knowledge of what will be happening in the near future. 
Exactly. And that, uh, you know, those, we, we sometimes refer to our auto flight systems and our flight management system computer as magic, but it's not quite that magic. It, uh, the, what we see displayed on our, uh, nav displays, uh, the wind, uh, arrow, you know, direction and speed is strictly and exclusively just what the airplane is computing as far as, you know, what the, what the actual wind speed is at that. We, we have a computer yeah. on the aircraft. It's a BFM. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's huh. kind of top secret, Dana. We're not supposed. Yeah. To well, no, no. It's 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 called a CA, CADC on our aircraft, essentially a data computer, which actually does all those calculations for us. Right. I but thought it doesn't, that was it, Chemtrail it, it, Air Delivery Computer. Shh, Captain. Oh, okay. shh. Man, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do a lot of uh, <laughs> editing on the show to take this stuff out. What, so, the PFM computer. Yeah. That. No. Yeah. Well. We'll just let people use their imaginations on that one. It's fine. Yeah, I didn't, I go, I didn't go into details. So PFM some of the, I was just going to add quickly in some of the um, more sophisticated GA, GA aircraft um, with the different GPS systems that they have. And the, uh, G, okay. the, the more sophisticated GA aircraft that have far more sophistication than the aircraft that Jeff and I fly. So, yes. you know, in, in those aircraft, basically the GPS is calculating your ground track, your ground speed. Um, the aircraft knows your magnetic heading. It knows the outside air temperature, pressure, indicated airspeed, so it can get your true airspeed. And then it's just a math calculation from there to figure out your headwinds and tailwinds when you compare all those different ground speeds. So just math, just yep. math, like you would do data. on like you would do on your E6B, you know, old school, pull it out yep. and, and calculate. So well, that's data BFM input, pure fun math, BFM. There you go. Excellent. Well, Ahmad, I hope we, uh, well, thank you, Captain Nick, for answering him directly. I'm sure you went into a lot more detail, but uh, thanks for answering his question live on the show. Well, no problem. We always try and do our best to answer everything. And this is a try. public service announcement sure. for those kids that are listening to the, the, to the show. Make sure that you make, go through school and take, you take your time and learn your math because it's very important. And the public service. Very true. Thank you very much. Uh, this is from Herc Guy Jack. Uh, hi guys, Herc Guy Jack from Japan. First time feedback giver, short time listener. Okay. I recently stumbled across, welcome by the way, to the uh, APG community. I recently stumbled across the APG podcast and the hook has been set. I enjoy having the option of watching as well as listening. It's always interesting to listen to your show. And most recently had my family listening as we drove across Southern Japan last week. It was interesting, the questions I had to answer afterwards. Thanks for taking the time to make it a very professional podcast for us all to enjoy. Oh, wait a minute. Does he think he's uh, sending this to another podcast? I don't know. Which show was that? I don't don't remember. I think think (laughs) we got the wrong address. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah, we uh, we enjoy doing it, uh, Herc Guy, Jack. Um, Let's see. uh, I'll admit that I have to uh, have my work cut out catching up on past episodes. I've listened to about 10 now, so I need to find about 34,200 extra minutes somewhere in order to properly catch up. (laughs) I assume, I assume I'll get there eventually. Yeah, you will. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Uh, so for my feedback back in episode 290, you discussed a news article talking about how a certain European carrier, I think they were given the name Ryan air had to cancel flights due to a pilot scheduling snafu. Well, it seems that the U.S. Air Force has a bit of a pilot shortage as well, 
and is now looking at recalling retired U.S. Air Force pilots to come back in to help out. And in fact, we covered that on uh, the last show. I believe we talked about the fact that they could be recalling as many as 1,000 retired uh, former fighter pilots. Uh, Yeah, we did do that. I don't know how this will affect those of us who are preparing to retire from the Air Force in, oh, let's just say the next nine months or so, but it is certainly interesting times. I wonder if you could discuss how the recall would affect U.S. airlines if it were to become a mandatory recall. I believe as of now, it is strictly voluntary. Is the U.K. having the same issues with its pilots, even with a longer service time? I don't know. Nick, are they doing the same kind of thing over there? Or no, no, are they no, not no really? don't worry about that. We, our air force has shrunk to such minuscule proportions that we don't need many pilots. I mean, I think there's, there's about 10 of them. I think that's all we need. Okay. No, I'm only checking. I mean, uh, seriously, though, uh, <laughs> you only have one airplane, so has yeah. shrunk considerably. Uh, and um, no, I did. Uh, we, we're not even as much as uh, even a small airline now. So no, we don't have that problem. Yeah. Um, not sure exactly how it's going to affect uh, the U.S. airlines. Uh, uh, maybe each airline will be a fraction of that number. Um, I, I don't know, really. Um, you know, if it's going to be a mandatory recall and, and how it will affect the U.S. air carriers, I would imagine it's going to affect as it as the shortage does, um, you know, in on the uh, regional airlines much more profoundly than the majors. Uh, but uh, I, I really don't know uh, any any ideas or thoughts about that, uh, either Steph or Dana. No, I don't. Nope. Um, no, I don't. All right. Well, then I'm going to move on and uh, maybe somebody can send us some feedback and, and give us an idea of how they think it's going to affect. But uh, I, I don't think it's going to be a huge effect, actually. Um, Captain Jeff, I read that you were also a member of the 7,000-pound dog whistle driver club as well. I learned a lot in the tweet, the uh, T-37 trainer, and it was a fun little plane to fly, except when it was hot or cold or, well, it was a good trainer jet. Some of the things I recall from those days how sometimes the engine wouldn't light off until the lineman shook the wing. I don't remember that, actually. Uh, the coordination required to close the canopy, keeping, uh, keep the nose wheel steering button engaged, and get off a quick radio call to the runway supervisory uh, unit. Uh, washed out more students than any spin ever did. Yeah, it was a, a lot of requi- um, coordination required to do, uh, to close the canopy and keep the nose wheel steering button engaged and keep from taxiing off the taxiway. Um, the silver key connected or disconnected call passing through 10,000 feet. And he's referring to the zero, uh, what do they call it? Zero G zero delay cord or lanyard or something like that. Um, basically when you're below 10,000 feet, um, you, uh, attached a, um, on your parachute, you, uh, attached a, a zero delay thing so that there would be no delay when you were ejected. Uh, for the parachute to start coming out because you didn't have much altitude to work with. And above 10,000 feet, uh, you could let the uh, delay system act, you know, be, become activated and it gives you more time to get away from the ejection seat uh, before the parachute is deployed. Um, what, what is that thing called? Zero delay lanyard, maybe that's what we called it. Um, I still remember all the bold phase from that jet for some reason and can recall the spin recovery procedure in my sleep. Yes, it's 43 words to be exact. And you had to get every single word exactly right uh, to pass your check ride. 
Uh, and I'm not going to, I'll spare you all the uh, actual spin recovery procedure. Um, the term don't buggy whip it was commonly known to all who spun her. Yep. If you were in formation or even touched 69% on the RPM, you were going to be left behind. Yeah. I think that was when the uh, uh, speed break, the attenuators, thrust attenuators came out. So you didn't want to ever get let the RPM get that far back. Uh, from idle to max power, the engines took 12 to 13 seconds to spool up. It would uh, sometimes snow in the cockpit. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, sometimes our air conditioning system uh, trying to cool us down would start spitting out. And I think we've all probably experienced that. And if you've been in an airplane, even a, as a passenger in, in an airliner, sometimes you experience snow in the back coming out of the uh, air conditioning vents. Um, anyway, so he goes on and talks about a few other things that uh, uh, were uh, memories of his flying the uh, T-37. Uh, he continues, Captain Nick, is the RAF still flying the F-4 or have they all been retired? The oh, Japanese self-defense for oh, okay. Uh, the Japanese Self-Defense Force here still operates them and recently had one catch fire while at the Last Chance, or EOR, arm area. Again, not airline-related, but this is a joint-use airfield, as many of the smaller airfields are here in Japan. Uh, so he, he gives a link to that uh, article about a Japanese fighter jet catching fire. Uh, thanks again for your wonderful podcast. It's always nice to listen to it here in Japan, and yes, the sushi really is that good here, right, Dr. Steph? It really is. Yeah. I'm jealous. And again. <laughs> now I'm hungry. Well, we can all, well, you know what? Maybe uh, 2019 we'll do a meetup in Japan. <laughs> I'd go back. Uh, I don't know. I don't know why I'm saying that. Um, <laughs> and, and again, this is Hurt Guy Jack. Uh, sometimes I say things and then people go, they already start to work on uh, getting hotels and everything. So <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding about Japan. No, okay. don't run out there yet. Uh, <laughs> Better chance going to Australia. Uh, yeah, I've never, well, I've, I've never been as a, a civilian to uh, Australia and spent any time there, really. That'd be nice. Okay. Well, thank you, uh, Hurt Guy Jack. Glad to have you a, a part of our community. Um, I thought this was an interesting one from Big Ron. One uh, of you want to take this one and read it? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, okay. Remembering the Polish uh, 767 that landed at Warsaw with no undercarriage, even though this sort of emergency is virtually unheard of with today's modern airliners, are you trained for such an event? And if not, how do you think you would handle it? <laughs> well, it, it, you'll, you'll always find out eventually because you haven't got a, an unlimited supply of fuel. Um, so uh, what would be your first thoughts on how to try to get the aircraft back on the ground with as little damage as possible and as safe as possible? I watched the investigation on the lot uh, 767 and found it fascinated. Thanks for taking the time uh, reading this not-so-big run. Cheers, guys and girls. Well, I don't know about you guys, but uh, we've got quite uh, a long checklist for uh, gear that doesn't come down. Uh, it depends, obviously, what aircraft type, because uh, for me, the 330 has only got two main bogies and a nose wheel, whereas the 340 has got a center bogey as well. So it very much depends on which bogey won't come down. Or, of course, if none of them come down, that's actually very simple. <laughs> You're going to land it on the belly uh, regardless. Um, so if you can get some down, that's always an advantage because it's going to take some of the load and uh, limit the amount of damage. Um if uh, you've got, say, let's assume you've got a, a left main bogey that won't come, come down, well, you're obviously going to reduce the weight of the aircraft so there's uh, less impact damage. You're going to reduce the amount of fuel so that 
Um, there's less to burn in case you drift off and uh, a tanks drift off the runway, a tank splits open, you end up with a fire. Don't want that to happen. Um, you are going to uh, pick an airfield that uh, preferably has a crosswind or runway that preferably has a crosswind into the wing that has the damaged gear or the gear that won't come down. That'll help try and hold that wing up as long as possible in the uh, rollout. Um, you are going to land on the side of the runway uh, with the good gear on the uh, on that side. So you'll inch the aircraft over. And of course, in a big aircraft, you can't inch it over very far, but you can certainly bias towards uh, the side of the runway um, that has the good gear so that when you eventually drop that wing, obviously the drag of the engine pods hitting the ground are going to tend to pull the aircraft uh, off uh, the runway in that direction. If you've sidled up to the side of the runway, you've got a lot more runway to play with if the aircraft starts to slide away. Uh, depending on the severity of the problem, uh, we're going to uh, obviously declare a, uh, a mayday. We're going to get the runway radars. We're going to line it up long and uh, a long way out. We're going to come in at a reasonably slow speed, but not too slow because you need to be able to uh, still have control lots of control authority to put the aircraft on the ground nice and gently and if you try and bring it in ultra slow you're not going to have that control authority so we just basically land at normal speed or close to vls um and then having put the uh aircraft down we're probably not going to arm the spoilers if it's a main gear so that we don't uh, get wing uh, lift dump onto that wing and it bangs into the runway we don't want that because obviously there's no gear to support it so we're, we're not going to use the spoilers. We're going to brake gently. Um, we're going to try and hold that wing up as long as possible and keep the aircraft straight. This is why we pick a very long runway so that uh, we can do all these things and not risk running over the end. Eventually, though, as the um, speed drops, the uh, wing that isn't supported by a gear is going to slide down onto the runway. And depending on your aircraft, of course, Jeff hasn't got the advantage of... Uh, underwing pods uh, on my aircraft we have you're eventually going to settle a pod onto the ground so by that time you need to have those engines shut down uh, so that uh, you're going to cause as little damage as possible and uh, then you're eventually going to shut down the wings on the other wing uh, engine sorry on the other wing uh, so you're going to effectively going to be just a you know bit of metal uh, just sliding down the runway uh, as you come towards a uh, very low speed and um, then once the aircraft's come to a halt, you're going to probably do an evacuation. So you need to have prepared the cabin. You need to have uh, made sure everyone uh, it knows we're doing an emergency landing. You're going to get everyone in the brace position uh, at 200 feet. And uh, then once uh, you're stationary on the ground, you're going to call for an evacuation. And then, of course, you do have to have a little think about uh, which doors might be available for evacuation. Um, if it's a center gear, that's sorry, a wing gear, that's not too much of a problem. But if you lost the nose gear, for example, the back end of the airplane is going to be sticking way up and the slides will probably be near vertical. So that's not an ideal door to evacuate people from. So you're probably going to want to uh, uh, get the cabin crew to um, lock off those doors and make sure people don't try and slide out of that. Unless for some reason that's the only way out of the aircraft. Um, and you're going to use the forward exits. All those sort of considerations are in quite a long drill. So hopefully if when you end up with this situation, you've got a, a little bit of fuel to give you, say, half an hour of preparing the airplane, going through the drills, making sure you've done everything you can to get the gear down, and then eventually dealing with it.
Uh, and that's about what I can do off the top of my head. So clearly, Ron, uh, we don't train for this at all. <laughs> oh, yeah, we do it quite regularly in the sim as well. And the sim's not bad at it, actually. I've done a few uh, landing, main gear up landings, or one main gear up landing. Yeah. And uh, it, does, it makes a, a horrendous grunching noise, and you kind of slither off, and sometimes you end up in the grass, and, it, uh, and then you have to do the evacuation, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, yeah. I'll have to say, and I'm sorry, um, the, my my bandwidth is getting really warbly here, so I'm 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 sorry if I've talked over somebody. Go ahead, Steph. Were you saying something? Oh no, I just um, sorry. I was looking up something else. I'll um, Nick was talking, but Ron asked about: Do they still foam the runway? Did you answer that? No, no, that they don't really. They found out that uh, it doesn't really have that much effect. You can't foam enough of the runway for a big airplane anyway. It used to be done in the Air Force, mainly for fighters. And they can generally only foam a, a fairly narrow strip, and it's not very long. So for a big airplane, you, you know, you're, you're going to have a hard job stopping within it or even, um, you know, getting the, the engines that are scraping on the ground to be within it. Um, so it's it's a kind of pointless. I don't think there are the facilities in many places. Um, I don't think in there are any in the UK that I know of now that still use it. And there was always a great deal of doubt as to whether it was actually uh, effective anyway, because uh, the amount of heat generated from grinding um, aircraft, say engine pods along the runway at 100 knots, uh, a layer of foam in the runway is not going to stop that. It's still going to spark and it's still going to effectively set things alight. Much better to have the fire trucks at the right spot waiting to soak the airplane in foam at that point than it is to perhaps waste 10,000 feet of foam that's actually not going to even be there when you when you come to a halt. You're going to be somewhere completely different off the side of the runway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's... For our aircraft, I mean, it would just be sliding on the belly of the aircraft, so I don't think it would be, uh, you know... The, the thing that with a seven six or even your any aircraft that has an underwing uh, engine, like uh, what what was the probably one of the number one concerns when when uh, they crashed in the Hudson was the worry of the engine grabbing and catching and flipping the airplane. So, um, yeah. that would be my own, only comment. Some, some an aircraft like the eighty eight, you don't have anything underneath really hanging down there to grab, which will make it a, a little bit safer, I think, in that situation. Put the aircraft on the ground. Aren't you worried? Aren't you guys worried that a, a wing might dig in? Though, uh, I mean, is that a, a feasible? I don't know how many aircraft, how many mad dogs have ever landed with the gear up. No, I don't think any. But I mean, it's just you know when you think about a, an aircraft that has the wings hanging off an nacelle off the the bottom of a wing, um, you know that's something that can you know grab and, and cartwheel the airplane. Well, it's going to tear off, to be fair. I mean, an airplane of uh, like, you know, 250 tons, uh, it's, the, the pylon's probably going to rip off. It's probably not going to spin the whole airplane around. Um, so, I mean, and they've been quite a few. Oh, but, you know, th- there have been, there've been a couple instances where, you know, you touch a wingtip and the aircraft ends up cartwheeling. So it doesn't take a whole lot necessarily to, to, to possibly cause it. No, no, that, but that, that wingtip is a big moment. Um, the, yeah, I mean, I mean we, we don't know. It, there are lots of variables. Of course, we don't, you know, we, uh, what was that uh, aircraft that crashed right off the beach? 767. Seven, five, seven, seven, six. Seven, six, seven. It ended up cartwheeling too. So, you know, you just don't know. Well, anyway. It's, it's certainly, it's certainly not, none of us here on this panel would ever like to try that out. That's for no. sure. No one not ever dreamed no, for I, it. I know of a pilot who has, uh, uh, you know, we have one on our company 
quite early on in the uh, A340s life and landed with the main gear stuck up. And uh, it was an extremely successful landing. We barely left the side of the runway and uh, there was no injuries whatsoever, or no major injuries whatsoever on there. Well, in fact, it was flying, flying again in about three weeks. I can tell you that in my experience um, at my airline, uh, not a lot of emphasis is placed on various um, gear not working kind of scenarios, at least in our in our training in the simulators, at least not not in my experience. Uh, they kind of let the checklist kind of go, you know, lead you through everything and give you the different uh, possibilities and what you should consider and everything else. But uh, maybe that's just me. Um, but um, anyway, uh, that was a great question. Thank you, Ron, for, um, for, for giving it or sending it and asking it. And before our, we get too long in the tooth, which is kind of a odd thing or a, a ridiculous thing actually to say about this show, because we're always long in the tooth. Um, let's make sure that we get in this week's installment, the uh, third part of, uh, Nyjah's, um, interview uh, regarding the 49ers. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales, The 49ers Part 3. We continue our interview with Captain Nigel Demery, past president of the Hong Kong Aircrew Officers Association. The 49ers have been illegally fired from Cathay Pacific. We resume the final part of this interview to find out what became of them. What were the FALPA policies uh, that helped you out when you were taking industrial action? The uh, FALPA Industrial Committee has got a load of protocols. Um, for example, if, uh, let, let's say, um, uh, Virgin Atlantic goes on strike, well, the last thing you want is... Uh, all the British Airways pilots taking all of the Virgin Atlantic customers, otherwise the strike's uh, going to be broken for no money. So um, uh, you have these written down procedures and protocols, and if you're the uh, union taking action, you request your FALPA to institute which one of these protocols you want. One of them that we used was the recruitment ban, because obviously we'd had 50 guys fired, and um, we didn't want 50 new um, pilots walking through the door because obviously Cathay just wanted to replace them and move on. So if Falpa put the recruitment ban in uh, place for us, and uh, I have to say, you know, when you're trying to get into your dream airline, when you're trying to further your career, uh, it's very tempting to go to this airline um, when there are new jobs going. So I take my hats off to the many, many young guys who uh, uh, observed the Falpa recruitment ban and um, decided to wait before they went to Cathay or found another job. What happened to the 49ers? Uh, it's dire, Nick. It's dire. Um, it's a long time ago and we haven't got time to go into all the detail. We've got a, a website, the CathayPilotsUnion.org, all one word, and there are a couple of newsletters on there that explain it all. But you know, we had guys and their families, two families, physically evicted onto the streets with Cathay management kicking them out. One of them had already negotiated with his landlord to stay on, but no, they insisted that it was uh, terminated. They they made misrepresentation to the tax office about everyone's, these 50 guys are all leaving 
um, and they've all got to pay full tax. And these blokes were sent tax demands. Like you couldn't get out of Hong Kong. You couldn't, you know, you couldn't leave Hong Kong and go somewhere cheaper, like back home in England, for example, um, until you'd paid your tax bill. And they, these guys were given huge tax bills that were complete fabrication, worst case. Um, people were given tax bills. Oh, I hear you're leaving Hong Kong. No, actually, I'm staying. You know, my family's here. I'm, I'm, no, well, you still got to pay this tax bill because Kathy says you got to go. Um, they they wouldn't pay them the uh, benefits that they were entitled to, or like shipping uh, all your furniture back home. Like they, you you got to pay for your complete relocation back to England. I know we normally pay for it, but bad like you're a 49 they, If you had a, they, Cathay had a credit card um, scheme going with one of the banks. I can't remember which one. And uh, the Blakes went to you know, a bit short of cash, get something on credit card. No, the credit card's been terminated, you know. So there were a whole host of subsidiary intimidation and, Actually, bloody rude. Uh, un, un, yeah, very vindictive. Uh, not it was nasty. It was evil. It was evil. So they didn't just fire them, give them three months. Now they held on to the three months' pay, you know, because oh, you might have to pay tax bills and all that sort of thing. So the guys were, uh, they were right at the beginning. They were in a really, really bad state. It was hard. It, it wasn't just oh, you've lost your job. As you know, in the airlines, you don't. You could be a senior training captain today, but you leave the airline today and go to another one. You start off at the bottom of the rank of seniority, and you're a first officer again. So, huge, huge problems for guys. Huge problems. Well, these guys just able to go and get other jobs with other airlines. Ah, funny old thing. There was a blacklist. Nobody ever admitted it, but you know, we had guys going to Emirates. There you go, another expat airline qualified on triple seven should be able to walk into a job get through the interviews at all and guys they if it was known throughout the industry that because tony tyler and philip chen said it at the press conference on the 9th of july that anyone who stopped working for kathy on the 9th of july is a troublemaker so there was um, a blacklist of amongst i mean if you're running an airline would you hire one of the guys that kathy kicked out as a troublemaker of course you wouldn't you'd take the bloke that's behind him in the queue so the blokes found it incredibly hard to get jobs again um certainly not in good reputable airlines people flew some shady freight jobs you know the Hajj and things like that but no they they were blacklisted and Cathay was really good the director of flight ops Ken Barley as he was then um, he said oh we'll write a letter saying that you were fired for no valid reason you can give it to the next manager that's uh, who's recruiting you and when we got to the court of final appeal in Hong Kong uh, I can't remember which of the five judges it was he said, well, that's just a lie, isn't it? <laughs> Excellent. How was the situation eventually resolved? Well, time. You know, we went into uh, hold hold the ground mode. Like, we didn't want to escalate. We didn't want to retreat. Because if you retreat, the 49ers were lost. So we just held the ground. It was a bit of a problem because the 9th of July was uh, 10 weeks before 9-11. And I think all of your listeners will know how that affected the industry. And, of course, our little... Uh, well, it was a big, important thing to us, uh, the 49ers in Hong Kong, but in the macro world, uh, our little dust-up with Cathay Pacific Management paled into insignificance. So we basically went into uh, 
two or three years of guerrilla tactics. Um, then, I don't know whether your uh, listeners will know, but uh, then SARS came along in 2003. That was one of the flus, the pandemic type things. Um, so Hong Kong shut down. I mean, they shipped people. They they isolated whole housing estates, um, and you know, passed food through the door like you see in the movies, sort of thing. Um, so SARS came in. That was huge effect on um, Hong Kong and on obviously on Cathay. And it's nobody was flying to Hong Kong. You wouldn't go there. So they now needed. Uh, the airline now actually did need to survive. And the only way you can really survive is if your employees help you. So they came to us and said, look, we need some help in SARS. And at last, after two years of holding on, we were able to negotiate with them because, you know, you want something, we want something. And so at last, we were able to start talking with them again after two years. At that point, I felt, I well, I was pretty knackered by then, and so I handed over to somebody whom I thought I could trust to succeed me. Mistake. Um, and that someone was completely outmaneuvered by very wily and uh, sharp Cathay management. And basically he came to a deal that the 49ers didn't want. He didn't put it to uh, the membership per se. And... Um, uh, the net result was, uh, in the end, uh, they came up with a, well, well, if you, we can pay you some money and go on your way. Um, you can get re, uh, we'll put you through an interview process for a job. Um, but the main thing is that, uh, all, uh, legal, uh, assistance from the AOA will cease at that point. So if the AOA agrees to this, they have to stop funding the legals. So the le they, they, you were conducting quite a large series of legal actions against the company on behalf of the 49ers? Yeah, of course. We were after basically unfair uh, dismissal in four jurisdictions, Australia, um, America, UK and Hong Kong. And everyone knows that the law, uh, the wheels of law move remarkably slowly. And but very we were expensively. now progressively. Yeah, very expensively. So without uh, the AOA funding, I, the rest of the union funding the legal cases to protect the contract, um, it was going to die dead in the water. And eventually, I'm afraid, that's what happened. Um, 19 guys chose to accept neither of those deals and pursued the legals. Um, and uh, but they needed money. So at that point, because I was completely against this abandonment of the 49ers, I was one of seven founder members of a new union. That's all you need to found a union in Hong Kong. Uh, we started the Cathay Pilots Union on the 1st of May 2005. And through that membership, we funded the UK and uh, Hong Kong. Now, I know the that was a long battle, but it culminated in a in a real victory. Can you describe that to us? Well, first of all, we won in the UK, and John Warham and I went, it's great, we went to the House of Lords, it's now called the Supreme Court, but we went to this fantastic building, and went into the House of Lords, and it was fantastic, and we won that. And there was only one plaintiff left at this stage in the UK, Captain George Crofts, um, and uh, he won, and basically uh, he set profound employment law, which has had spin-offs later on. Yeah, um, but yeah, so we won in the UK, 
And it took 11 years, but eventually we won in the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong. Um, and that was very pleasurable. And basically, Cathay had broken the law, just as simple as that. They had broken the law. Our union objectives say everything has to be lawful, which is sort of quite reasonable, really. You can't go around with baseball bats in this day and age. So we'd stuck to the law, but Cathay broke the law. And that was the bit that was wrong. And that's where they actually got the advantage because we had to rely on the legal system then to dig us out of it. And we won in the end. But that case set a precedent in uh, employment law that affects almost every pilot now, whoever works on a basing, yes? The, the, the UK decision, which was then, it didn't affect the Hong Kong case so much, but the UK decision uh, basically affects all peripatetic employees. In other words, people who are on the move. And in this day and age of globalisation, loads, hundreds, thousands, millions of people are probably on the move. Pilots, obviously, are, are clear. And uh, what it's basically the UK law is adopted by many countries, the common law system, precedent. And once that precedent's been set, unless a later ruling that has other ramifications overturns it, it sticks. So actually, only about two months ago, um, some buddies of mine won a case down in New Zealand based on George Cross win 11 years earlier in um, in England. And um, the Cathay was trying to kick him out at the age of 55. And uh, the New Zealand Supreme Court has just ruled, no, you can't do that because they're based in New Zealand. And in New Zealand, you're not allowed to fire somebody under over the age of 55 or any age. There's age discrimination, which we don't have in Hong Kong, incidentally. But no, so those guys get another 10 years' work because Cathay Pilots Union funded the 49ers through to win in England. That really was a magnificent victory. I know it didn't really do much for the 49ers uh, looking back on it, but uh, to have that kind of a victory in law that will protect other pilots in the future, I think, is a great legacy. Yeah, it's great, actually. I'm very proud of that. So how do you feel looking back on that period? Um, well, I'm, uh, I have to say that, you know, time's a great opportunity to reconsider the decisions and actions you took at the time. There were losses on both sides, un unnecessary losses, because it was actually about control. And actually, pilots are pretty reasonable. You know, we wanted a reasonable roster. We wanted reasonable contractual and stick to the contract. We don't want it changing every day. Uh, but, uh, I, I mean, three people died. Two of the 49ers died. One of one of. Uh, them, his wife committed suicide in the garage, hung herself in the garage. There was huge, huge, huge stress. 51 careers were lost. Even 12 of the 19 guys that went back to work for Cathay, they they never got the same contractual terms again. They were started on the freight, you know, huge career losses, never got the same seniority. Um, there serious health issues, you know, people with uh, in fact, George Cross, he had triple bypass surgery. You know, a lot of stress going on. Um, from, on the other side of the coin, you know, Cathay lost at least half a year's profits. That amount of money for the uh, dispute. Um, uh, you know, huge disruption to uh, thousands of, uh, of our passengers. Um, and 
of course, you know, they've looked back on the system as well. And all their, all of Cathay's generals at the time were moved out or sideways because it wasn't a success for Cathay Pacific Airways. It was supposed to be a quick, done and dirty, bus a strike, put the pilots on our contracts, we'll control them in future. And it went on for the longest dis- uh, industrial dispute in aviation history. Wow. Any advice for the current pilots out there in Hong Kong? Um, well, yeah, because it's happening again. Um, it's a continual cycle. The trouble is airlines need pilots, look at Ryanair, but managers don't always know how to run an airline, look at perhaps Monarch. Um, and you get this cycle of managers coming through who have only done on-the-job training. They haven't been trained. Pilots are trained before they're allowed to sit in a seat and fly passengers around. Managers come along, they get through the job interview, and then they learn, basically, by their mistakes. And it's a simple fact, if you're running a business, that profit equals revenue minus costs. It's that simple. And the demand is always more profit, more profit. So if you're not increasing the revenue, you've got to cut the costs. And so they just... What are our cost items? Star for a cost item. Can't you, you can't out uh, banter the price of oil. Oil is a fixed price on a daily basis sort of thing. So we'll go for the cutting the costs of the staff. And so it's happening again now. Uh, already um, they're introducing new contracts. They've just cancelled the housing benefit. Uh, they're changing the scheduling again. And it's right now it's all a repeat of what was going on in uh, 98 and, and 2001. Uh, one difference, I think, is that we have um, proved that if the Cathay pilots wish to take industrial action again, they are protected by law. If management were stupid enough to try and recreate a, a sequel, you know, 49ers 2 sort of thing, um, they would be serving an injunction because the law has been tested completely that they, that's illegal. But the pilots need to stick together and learn from what went on before because if you're after a career, it's going to happen once or twice at least in your career. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. Where might we find more details about the industrial action and the story? Yeah, cathaypilotsunion.org. There's a little news section on the side and there are two newsletters there that summarise everything that I've said, or in more detail, actually. My thanks again to Nigel for telling this amazing story. And for more information, a book I can recommend is The 49ers, The True Story by John Warren who was one of the 49ers and the chief negotiator for the Cathay Pilots Union. Music by bensounds.com So my thanks really to uh, Nice Demery for giving us his time. He's a fascinating bloke. He's got a great story, and that story spread out over three plain tales, sort of joined it all together. And he led his union, which was not a particularly um, aggressive union because they're not very well supported by employment law in Hong Kong. 
He led them through what was uh, an immensely long and vicious uh, fight with their management. And uh, you can you can tell just by uh, how deeply affected Nigel uh, has been by watching 51 guys have their careers ruined. There were deaths and suicides amongst those. And, um, you know, the, the pilots' union at the end of it came out with no great advantage. The company came out with no great advantage. And uh, they probably lost uh, several uh, hundred million dollars, uh, the company did, uh, during the dispute, all in an effort to break the pilots' union. Um, something that was really an awful thing to attempt and um, very unethical uh, the way they went about it. Uh, and it's so sad to see that cycle uh, now apparently repeating itself. So um, I, I can, really can recommend that book by John Warren. Uh, you can find it on um, an ebook. So, and it's not expensive at all. And uh, he has brought it up to date, I think, with the results of the uh, court case uh, in the um, at what was then the House of Lords, uh, the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom, uh, where they set this precedent for employment law that affects uh, any based um, pilot uh, who, uh, and basically the law says when you're based somewhere, um, you come under the um, employment law of that country, not under Hong Kong's employment law. So you can't just go around and fire people willy-nilly. Um, you've got to have true justification for it. Uh, and that's what is really what it came down to. But you know, following those court cases took um, over a decade and an enormous amount of money, which Nigel and just a few other guys managed to uh, generate by forming uh, a separate union and funding these court cases individually. And I can tell you, when... Uh, You've got to pay for a Queen's Council and you've got to pay uh, to have legal representation in the Supreme Court. That is not a cheap thing. Well, thank you for that wonderful summary. Um, I've been tasked with moving on to something that I wanted to um, cover real quick from uh, last week's episode. Um, we answered a question about the use of cell phones in flight and we received a uh, email from Steve saying, eh, well, you got some of it right, but you missed a whole big big part of it, at least for here in the United States when it comes to the use of cell phones um, in flight. And I'm not going to read all of his email here because it's goes on for quite a bit. And I know we're running a little short on time, but basically he points to um, a federal agency here in the United States, the FCC, which is the Federal Communications Commission. And under Title 47, Chapter 1, Subpart B, Part 22, Subpart H, Section 22.925, which may be why I didn't come across it in my uh, searching to try and answer the question last week. Um, Rolls off the tongue are, there. Yeah, just just right off the tongue. He, uh, the, the FCC definitely weighs in very concretely where the FAA does not regarding cell phones. And they say cellular telephones installed in or carried aboard airplanes, balloons, or any other type of aircraft must not be operated while such aircraft are airborne. Uh, i.e. not touching the ground. So when any aircraft leaves the ground, all cellular telephones on board, that aircraft must be turned off. Uh, so there you have it. There is no um, ambiguity about that. Um, and they actually do have the final say on that. And um, failure to comply could result in suspension of service and or a fine. And Steve says he has no idea whether this has actually been enforced. But uh, anyone operating or riding in an aircraft should be aware of this rule. So applies to passengers, pilots, and and everyone. Um, 
I'm going to summarize and skip a little bit of this, but he says uh, he's starting to sound a little like the new curmudgeon. <laughs> I'm not saying I like the rules. I'm just saying they're there. And I try to do my bit as a responsible citizen to comply with them. So thank you very much for that, Steve W. in Marietta. Um, that does uh, get a whole portion of what I, I missed last week on that. So I want to make sure I corrected that error. So there's no question about what's um, allowed here in the U.S. when it comes to cell phones on airplanes. So to sum, of it, sum it up, um, bottom line is electronic devices on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> on. Wait a minute. I think, I think you know the uh, position of our show here too, Steve. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, and it actually has to do with um, how cell phones um, connect with cell towers. Um, and the concern is that if you're thousands of feet above the ground, there's too many potential cell towers for it to connect with. And if you're moving... At a high rate of speed, um, it can basically confuse and overwhelm the, the cell network. So that's where the concern And those towers will blow up. Pretty much, yeah. But no, that'd be cool. <laughs> it? it has to do with something with redundancy of frequencies that I don't completely understand. I'm sure someone else can tell us about, about all of that. But the way cell phones actually, um, uh, um, cell phones can use the same signals to to create calls and all of that, which I'm not explaining well at all right now. But. It basically confuses the network, and the concern is that it um, will not only not work well for you, but other folks on the ground who are trying to use their cell phones at the same time. Well, I'm I'm confused, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes all of us, I think. Um, okay, well, thank you, Steve, for uh, sending that in, and thank you for being a part of the Coffee Fun Cadre. Again, we appreciate that. All right, well. That is going to be it for today's show. I have really no idea how long this thing is because we've had so many technical issues. Uh, who knows for sure. But uh, uh, yeah, so if you want to learn more about the show, you can head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com and uh, there you'll learn about the crew and the community and the, uh, let's see, soon, very soon, I'm getting very close to uh, uh, launching the uh, special Plain Tales page and you can listen to all, I don't know how many hundreds of them. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's looking great, by the way. Uh, I, I've given, <laughs> me given a peek, a preview, and it it looks works beautifully, and uh, I'm sure it'll be fabulous. Yeah, and you'll be able to subscribe. For those of you who are tech-savvy, you can subscribe to a feed of just the plain tales. And, um, and then Nick will be probably adding um, some stuff to it as well. I'm just kind of uh, creating the basic structure. Um, anyway, uh, merchandise, uh, how you can join the coffee fun cadre and more again, that's airlinepilotguy.com. And, uh, let's see, we also have some smartphone and, uh, mobile device apps for both the iOS and Android platforms, information about how you can download yours for free, no advertising or anything. Uh, and you can find that information at the airlinepilotguy.com website or in the show notes, which again are on the website as well and uh, social media sure thing you can head over to twitter um and you will find all of us together there at apg crew uh using that handle um pinned at the top of the page you can find our individual twitter account information you can go over to facebook facebook.com slash airline pilot guy um join the community there there's all kinds of interesting articles and topics for discussions posted um we do read through those and respond uh when we can um the social media all right and uh, one more piece of social media that we need to talk about it's called slack 
APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan meetups and events. To get into the Slack team, please send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at HI11E1, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel at HI11E1, and see you in Slack. Thanks, Hillel. And uh, let's see, what else? I guess that's about it. Looking forward to uh, talking to you all again next week for our next episode at 297. We're getting close to 300. And in fact, after today's show, we're going to talk about the uh, details regarding the uh, celebration at Dana's house for episode 300, which is going to be on the 25th of November, 25th of this month, the Saturday of the Thanksgiving weekend. And hopefully we'll have all that information for you next time on the Airline Pilot Guy show. And until next time, Wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. We'll see you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Good day. fictionalized, mentioned, implied, or accidentally slipped by any of the participants, guests, or feedback providers you may or may not have heard, may or may not believe you may have heard, on this or any prior episode of the Airline Pilot Guy podcast. It ain't Bowie, I ain't going.